Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. Oh, we have a very special guest for you today. But first, we're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman is here. What it is. We've got the rest of our team in the studio as well, as well as our Patreon subscribers joining us on the live stream. Big thanks to our Patreon supporters. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because say it with me, y'all. Advertisements Advertisements suck. suck. (laughs) Yes, they do. We'll start with our callers. Today, we're going to be talking about money clutter, about wealth, about investing, about money, about what it means to you to live a rich life. So let's get into our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Alita. My name is Alita. I'm from Salem, Oregon, and I'm a private podcast subscriber. Minimalism to me means letting go of attachments to things, to ideas, to anything that's cluttering up your life and preventing you from living a full and happy life but I'm unsure of how to approach a minimalist mindset around investing. Investing, by nature, it would seem, is an accumulation in order to amass wealth specifically. And because of the nature of investing, putting money aside into an abstract and nebulous market and gambling that it's going to earn back more than you originally put in seems to be accumulation without a specific purpose, at least to me. I don't have wealth, so I would like to invest for retirement because I don't plan on working until noon on the day I die. But let's say I did have wealth. Let's say I had all the money I would need in a lifetime. What is the purpose of investing then? To build financial security for my children? They'll already inherit whatever I have. Do people who support a minimalist lifestyle invest? If so, what are they investing for? What is the mindset regarding that if they don't need any more money for survival? Is it simply an attachment at that point? Alita, what a thoughtful Mm -hmm. question. And I can't wait to hear a different perspective on this. Joining us in the studio right now to help us tackle this question is Ramit Sethi. He has a brand new Netflix series out. Actually, it comes out tomorrow on April 18th, and it is called How to Get Rich. Now, we're going to unpack that, Ramit, but ladies and gentlemen, Ramit Sethi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, so happy to have you, man. Thank you for having me, and thanks for having me back. This is awesome. Yeah. Last time I know, I think you were out of studio. I was out of studio, yeah. So it's awesome to be here with you, yeah, man. and uh, yeah, love the upgraded studio. You guys are absolute pros. You're <laughs> an inspiration to me. Oh, Oh, stop. That makes a lot coming from you, man. It's awesome. What, what year did you publish that? Uh, the original version yeah. of I Will Teach You Be Rich came out in 2009 mm-hmm. at the bottom of the recession, March 2009, literally the bottom. Perfect timing. Yeah. And then I wrote that one with the black cover is an updated 10-year uh, update 
Mm. So that came out in 2019. And then this journal came out very recently. I want to talk to you about the journal. So we've got, I will teach you to be rich, the journal. And I'm going to start with Alita's question here. And if I go to page seven, I had this marked specifically. And in here you talk about, because her question is like, what am I saving for? And I agree, mm-hmm. money becomes clutter if you're just saving, saving, saving for the sake of this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. But here in the journal, and I really enjoyed this because finance, there's an emotional side of it, but there's also the mechanical side. And you help people with both sides of the sort of the psychology behind money. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version of the podcast. But this this journal, it gives you prompts that don't just help you with the emotional side, but actually help you with the mechanics. And I think Alita's question is fundamentally about the mechanics of, okay, what am I saving for? Because if I'm just supposed to squirrel away money, but I don't realize why I'm doing it, well, then what is any of this for anyway? And so here on page seven, you talk about defining what your rich life might be. And it could be packing up your kid's uh, lunch or picking up your kids every day from school, right? Or buying a thousand dollar cashmere sweater. Maybe that's what a rich life looks like to you. Or maybe getting anything you want from Whole Foods without ever <laughs> worrying about the cost. Yeah. Not having to to look at the price tag and say, oh, wait, uh, the other one's 30, 30 cents cheaper. And now all of a sudden I'm constantly worrying. And there's a type of mental clutter that mm. this type of, of financial burden creates within us. You say, taking your family on an unforgettable vacation where they can go behind the scenes at Disney World with cast members or buying an extra phone charger for every room in your house, right? What your rich life looks like might be different from your neighbor's rich life. It should be. It should be. Your rich life should be vastly different than mine. And I bet it is. So when I when I start off talking to people about money, I do not start by saying, tell me about your Roth IRA setup. What's your allocation? Mm -hmm. Nobody cares, okay? I ask them, what's your rich life? And pretty much everybody gives me the same answer. I want to do what I want, when I want. I go, okay, (laughs) play this game. I go, so what do you want? Silence. Because we're not really taught to think Mm -hmm. about what our rich life is. We treat money as a burden. Oh, Mm -hmm. I should save. And sometimes I, just for fun, I go, why should you save? They go, uh, because, you know, they told me to. I need, and then they, what happens is people go into logic. I need it for financial security. I go, that's true. How much do you need? More. How much? A million dollars. I go, isn't it different if you live in LA or Manhattan or Ohio or, you know? And so we have this part of our brain that tells us we should be logical and save, which we probably should, but we are deeply emotional about money. And then we try to ignore it. We try to cover it up like like emotions are weakness. Mm. Actually, I think that I get a lot of joy from being able to go to a restaurant and order appetizers without looking at the price. You know why? Because when I was a kid, we could not afford appetizers. Mm. So that's meaningful to me. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I get a lot of joy being able to travel. And I, I'm a hotel guy. I love really nice hotels. I have a list. I know the exact room. I, it's dialed in. And it's very expensive. Now for me, I love it. So I love to spend extravagantly on the things I love and I cut costs mercilessly on the things I don't. In such a, as? Such as I drive an old car, such as mm-hmm. I rent my place, um, such as like I keep my computer for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just don't care about that stuff. And, you know, it's funny. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine and I told him like, I don't really care about the type of meat I buy at the grocery store. Like I get the cheapest one. Now I care about how much I'm eating. 
I have fitness goals, but he was like, you don't buy the most expensive whatever. And I was like, no, I don't care. He goes, why not? You could afford it. I go, it's not part of my rich life. Mm. For the things that are, I want to go mm. way deep on it. Mm. And some of it is expensive. Some of it's just being able to hang with friends in the middle of the day, free. But other parts of it that I don't care about, I go, not for me. And that's why my rich life is mine and your rich life is yours. Mm. I see another question inherent in that as well. And it's kind of like, you've implicitly defined what is my poor life? What are those areas where I'm willing to be boring so I can be exciting? What are those areas where I'm willing to be poor so I can be extravagant? Yeah, I, I would say poor is a loaded term. Sure. Uh, but I d- definitely think there are areas where I'm willing to cut back mercilessly, yeah. where it's just not worth even thinking about or spending time or money on it. And then... On the other hand, where do I want to go all in? And this is the kind of dynamic I love to see in people's lives. I'm talking about money specifically, but also in other parts. I love when somebody goes, you know what, Rami, like I have a a friend, a reader of mine. He goes, I live a rich life. I said, how's it rich? He goes, my wife and I use your material. We retired in our mid thirties. We travel in an RV across the country. That's our rich life. Now, personally, I find that to be my personal hell. (laughs) I don't want to go in an RV. I don't even want to step foot in an RV. He and his wife love it. And I think that's awesome. Another reader, he loves miniatures. Never even thought of it. Don't even know anything about it. But that's where he gets his joy. And he can spend time and money Mm. to create that rich life. Mm. I think that sometimes we we have a very paradoxical relationship with money. On one hand, we love it. We have a lot of adulation for it, envy for it. We look at pictures of Bora Bora on Instagram. But on the other hand, we hate it. It's puritanical. Oh, money's bad. If I get more money, I'm going to be an asshole. And what I love is helping people start with defining their rich life and then showing them how they can use money to live a bigger version of it. And if that means they, for example, if you love miniatures, maybe you can buy some extras. Maybe if you turn that dial way up, you can travel to South Dakota where the world's foremost miniature creator is doing it and you can take Mm -hmm. a tutorial with that person for two weeks. Whoa. Right, we can yeah. find a way to turn that dial up yeah. and use money to live it. That's what I'm talking about here. Yeah, man, this is uh, this is why I love your book, man. It's like it's it's timeless, man. It'll it'll always be useful when it comes to uh, money. That yeah, Thank awesome you. work. We're, we're talking. The, about, well, well I was, was going to say, there's one thing that you talk about in your book. Um, I'm paraphrasing, so like, correct me where I'm wrong. But instead of approaching money from an economic standpoint, it's more of a we don't really think about the philosophy or the intellectual side of that. Does that apply to uh, Alita's question here? Alita's question is, it can be very large and existential and it can be very simple and mechanical. So let's take a look at both of them. On the large existential question, what is the purpose of money? Why are we saving? I mean, you can start making arguments about, should I have more than somebody else next to me? How much is fair? And all of those questions. I have always focused on starting with the individual. So I I write for one person. And that's Mm. why when you read my book, you know I'm talking to you. Mm. Uh, But I absolutely agree there are existential structural questions. For example, you know, we're here in LA. Housing is really expensive. And so it would be disingenuous for me to be like, hey guys, just save a bunch of money and then like go buy a house. It's so easy. Like, (laughs) I hate when people say that. Oh, save your avocado toast. I'm like, fuck you! (laughs) You don't understand how costs have escalated. So... I think, and part of my philosophy is you can simultaneously acknowledge the need for systemic reform as well as take control of personal responsibility. 
You can do both. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I encourage. That's why I'm politically active. That's why I want people, especially young people, poor people, minorities, to have more access to housing, right? And I want to show you how to automate your savings. Mm -hmm. So that would be the large part of Alita's question. Why should we save? Well, on a personal level, you need to save because one day you may get injured, you may not have enough to live, or you may need to provide for a family member. As for the mechanics of it, she mentioned a very offhand quick comment where she said, I don't have wealth. Mm. And so what that tells me is she has a lot of questions and thoughts about it, but it's very easy when you are not engaged in something to, to sort of start spinning in your head. It would be like if I don't have a podcast at all, and then I go, well, I don't know if I should use this mic or that mic, and if I use that mic, what's it going to say about me, et cetera? It's like, just get a mic, mm -hmm. and let's just start, and you'll learn more from doing that. Yeah. So for Alita, I would say, we can actually start with, what is your rich life? Start with, if, if that's too big of a question, what's your perfect day? What's your perfect week? And I bet you in her perfect week, she's not going to tell me she likes spending three hours on laundry. I guarantee that. I bet you she's going to tell me she maybe wants to walk her dog in the middle of the afternoon. I go, okay, cool. Let's, let's craft something like a chef. And I will show her how an extra 200 bucks a month saved can actually lead directly to living that version of her rich life. Mm, I love it, man. Yeah, and what's what you're illustrating here is that a plan without a purpose, like, yes, I'm just saving, 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 is sort of like a recipe without hunger. Like, here's your recipe, but I don't know what I'm, why am I making all this food if I'm not hungry, yeah. right? Yeah. And so what is your rich life? We're really saying is like, what do you hunger for mm, in a I way? I love that. Yeah. yeah, I love that. We all intuitively understand where this can go wrong. If we think about anyone in our family or an older friend who has saved and saved for 20, 30, 40 years, and they kept telling themselves, you know, I, I need enough for retirement. When I retire, then I'm going to travel. Suddenly here they are, 60, 70, 75 years old, and they are not doing any of the things they said they would. They're not traveling. It may be because they're injured or they, they can't, or it may mm. simply because they never built the skills to actually spend their money. What a tragedy. Mm. What a tragedy to go your entire life telling yourself, ooh, one yeah. day I'm going to flip the page and magically turn into this other person. And then you and I, and we all know human nature, mm -hmm. you're not going to change. It's yeah. very difficult, especially at the age of 70 to do it. Yeah. So my encouragement for everybody here is there are some things in life that cannot wait. They cannot be done serially, like one after another. They have to be done together. Making friends is one. You can't be like, I'm not going to make friends till I'm 55. It's like, <laughs> dude, you're a loner for the rest of your life. Don't do yeah, it. That's right. And you, and you cannot wait. It's, it's increasingly difficult to become physically fit later in life. It can be done, but it's much more difficult. And it is very difficult to save money and to spend money as you get mm. later in life. Mm. That is a skill to spend money meaningfully that must be cultivated today and tomorrow. And yeah. that's what I've been really talking about recently. Yeah. And it's not because the universe gives you a deadline arbitrarily like, nope, you're over 40. You can't learn anything new. It's more of these things emanate from a mindset. It's kind of like in sports, why trying to flip the switch is so dangerous. We'll play the whole season being really lazy. Then we'll turn it up in the playoffs. But when you get to the playoffs, you can't escape your habits overnight. That's and so right. I love your answer here to this question that it's really about the mindset, which is the 
yeah. correlation with what we talk about with minimalism here. So did you hear that everyone get rid of your storage units full of avocado toast? <laughs> it's not doing anything for you. <laughs> no, r- real quick, I, w- I just want to say one thing about minimalism because uh, uh, what Alita mentioned was amazing about not just the f- physical stuff, but she went into all the non-physical things and yeah. how the point is to, is to let go. I would just throw a caveat there and say minimalism it, it gives you the opportunity to loosen your grip, which then presents the opportunity to let go if you want to. And it sounds like her idea and her, uh, her ideology towards money, maybe she wants to loosen her grip on that because she has this firm stance on, I shouldn't save any money because that's accumulate that's accumulation. But um, if you even got to let go of the, the, the whole minimalism idea, that's okay too. Like that's what it can do for you. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah s- save away, Alina. Yeah. Alita, I'm going to send you a copy of I Will Teach You To Be Rich, The Journal. I think you'll find immense value in it. There's also a section in there. I think we'll talk about it here on the podcast in a bit about rewiring your beliefs around money. I think that'll be especially helpful for you. Our next question today is from Ron in Mill Valley, California. Hi, my name's Ron. I'm from Mill Valley, California. And my question is about how much money people need. I have a feeling this is going to have a lot of different tangents. But anyway... I'm curious. So Ron is curious about how much money is enough money. But of course, one person's enough might be too much for their neighbor. Mm -hmm. And what is enough for my neighbor may not be enough for me, right? I'm going to give you a very simple answer. And then let's go into the nuances because this is very nuanced. The simple answer is if you plan to retire around 65 and you plan to live approximately... 25 to 30 years, a simple, simple, very simple answer would be you should be able to live off 4% per year of what you've got. Okay, so a million bucks in the bank, $40,000 a year in income. Now, underneath that, you can search for the 4% rule to understand the complexities of it. And there's a lot of variations. But I find it aggravating when someone asks a simple question, they just want a simple answer. They don't want to know all the theory. So there you go, 4%. Like when I talk to my mom and dad, that's where we start, 4%. Okay, so that's that's your basic rule. Now, what is enough? Mm. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> it. You know, many people, they, they, retirement and older age is just an abstraction. And I hate that. I, I do. I want to take it from the clouds to the street. The street is where I can stand. It's where I can see people. It's real. The clouds is just up here. I don't like to talk about that. So the street means, what kind of lifestyle do you have today? If you don't travel at all, it's probably unlikely you're going to travel when you get older. If you don't eat super fancy food or wear super fancy clothes, you're probably not going to do that when you're older. That's why I want people to start living that rich life, even a taste of it today. Uh, Often, most people, when they ask this question, it's in the back of their head. They just have this anxiety and fear that says, I don't have enough. But when you ask them what is enough, it's not really a dollar value. Yeah. Right. So they think it's a dollar value. I've told you the 4% rule, which is very simplistic, but really it's about knowing, am I going to run out of money? Which is number one fear when people get above the age of 50. It is knowing that what kind of lifestyle can I lead, even Mm -hmm. if I'm not going to lead it, but I want the ability to do it. And it's just truly being able to understand the mechanics. So if you are, let's say, getting older and the market drops 10%, what are you going to do? You're going to freak out? Do you understand the relationship between your investment portfolio and your returns? Most people don't. And so when you don't understand the basic language of personal finance, you let fear start to speak loudly. And I want to quiet the fear voice. It'll yes. always be there. That's okay. But I want to 
enlarge the financially fluent voice. Mm. That helps people really get strong enough to deal with these existential questions. Mm. There's a section in the book where you talk about having enough competence that it creates yeah. confidence. Yeah, confidence. I mean, everyone's like, I, you know, I don't feel confident about money. I'm scared. I go, okay, well, are you good at money? They go, no. I go, do you understand, you know, concepts like compound interest? They go, no. I go, okay, makes perfect sense. Like if you try to get me to sew a button, I don't feel confident because I'm incompetent. So therefore to feel confident, I need to become competent. It, it's not like some people are just magically born good at money. It's that you learn, just like any other skill, riding a bike, podcasting, anything, how to become more confident. Now, the secret of this is that you've got to work on both. So, you know, on my podcast, I bring these couples on. And some of them, and they talk about money. I, I insist they reveal every number, all their debt, all their income, all their spending. We talk about it all. It's like tearing behind closed doors. Some of them have $800,000 in debt. Some of them have $10 million in net worth. All over the game. You never heard a couple worth $10 million talk about how they're about to get divorced because he's too cheap. I brought that couple on the pod. You can hear him. What you learn is that you've got to work on two avenues with money. One is the financial nuts and bolts. That's the competence part. And the second is you also have to work on the psychology, the confidence. You've got to work on both and that helps you truly develop yourself so you can actually live a rich life. Hmm. And I think that's the minimalism aspect because when it comes to the psychology of money, we've all inherited a lot of baggage. Like just these culturally transmitted beliefs that were never spelled out, but it's like, how did your parents act when a bill had to be paid for? What did they do for you? Like, what do you remember your parents saying about money when you were growing up? Any phrases that come to mind? Oh, the, the the classic, it doesn't grow on trees. Doesn't grow on trees. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. What Anybody else? We can't afford that. We can't afford it. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. There was one I heard a lot that was, it's just money. I'll make more. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, entrepreneurs in your family? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there are these phrases and you hear them once, you hear them twice, you hear them a thousand times and they create grooves inside of you. You start to mm. believe it. Now I call these invisible scripts. Some of them can be really positive. Mm. I'm Indian. So for me, there are invisible scripts like education is always a good thing. I think generally that's a good invisible script. It can go too far, but it's generally good. But there are others like we can't afford that. And if you hear that, imagine what happens hearing that a thousand times from your parents, seeing your family only talk about money when they're fighting. And then one day you listen to this podcast, you become very successful. You clearly define your minimalist life. And you end up with $500,000 in the bank or a million or $2 million. But every time you go out to a restaurant, you go, we can't afford that. Mm. And you don't even know why you're saying it. Yeah, That's what happens when you get help. Like we talk about in the book and on the show and you realize, oh my God, I'm acting like this 42 years later and I never made the connection. The residue wow. from your childhood, yeah. the money residue carries forward into all of these beliefs that we have around our own finances. Yeah. There, was, there was one thing in the book that really stood out to me wow. when, when you helped me understand, getting back to Ron's question here, about enough. Like I've known that I have enough for a while, but you help quantify. You say, what happens if you come across a windfall? What if someone, you find an extra thousand dollars somehow? Or let's say someone gives you a hundred thousand dollars. How does that change your life? And the cool thing is like, $100,000 would significantly change my net worth. 
but it wouldn't change my life at all. My clothes right. wouldn't change. My car wouldn't change. My house wouldn't change. My furniture wouldn't change. Mm-hmm. If I came across an extra $100,000, the people in this room would make some more money as a result of that, which is my idea of a rich life, being able to, to contribute beyond myself. Yeah. But identifying, oh, I am living my rich life. I already have enough. I already knew that I had enough, but you helped mm. me understand that why. I love that. Just through that mm. little thought experiment. That's amazing to hear. Honestly, that is... In my opinion, that's one of the highest um, virtues that I can share, which is to know what enough is. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. is so rare. And I have a lot of friends who are successful entrepreneurs. They have a lot of money. And sometimes I'll ask them, like, do you have enough? Yeah. I have about one person I know who said yes, Mm -hmm. besides me. And these are, many of these folks are quite sophisticated with money. They know ratios and compound interest, but that alone is not enough to know and to feel that you have enough. And what an empty life to simply chase money for the sake of money. Mm. Now, I don't mind if you want to set a goal, you want to make $250,000, $2 million, you have a a list of things you want to experience or even buy, you want to get a beautiful car, awesome. I support that. If you can afford it and it's your rich life, great. But without some reasons Mm. and ideally meaningful reasons, Mm -hmm. you end up soulless. Yes. Yeah. I'd like you to help me with this concept of enough because I get the idea that sometimes we just haven't been taught to think specifically about what the rich life looks like for me. Uh, But there's another dimension to enough. Sometimes it feels wrong to believe that there is such a thing. Like, don't get too comfortable. Totally. That's dangerous, right? You ever think you have enough, then you may not be prepared for something else. How do you address that? Uh, Usually, it's very common that if we dig back enough in family history, there was somebody in your family tree who made money and then lost it. And it's now a mythology created that don't get too big for your britches. And yeah. this happens cross-culturally, right? So for example, um, there's, a, there's a phrase in Punjabi, which is basically don't let them look too, too much upon your face. It means you're getting too big for your britches. This exists in, in many cultures. And I agree, we need to manage our ego. So you, you're not going to see me posting a bunch of big photos of me on a yacht. Look, I'm so cool. Me, Satie. <laughs> That's just not my style. Yeah. But I also think that you take that too far and you live a smaller life than you have to. And personally, I consider that a tragedy. And I actually think that this is quite aligned with minimalism. I think that our philosophies are uh, adjacent to each other, which is why I love coming on here and talking and really like chopping it up about what's similar, what's different. I consider it a tragedy to live a smaller life than you have to. Because a rich life is about living your rich life as big as you can. For example, if you your rich life is relationships, you might take your family on a beautiful vacation every single year. If your rich life is charity, you might set a rule, which is what my wife and I have done. We are going to tip a minimum percentage everywhere we go, mm. everywhere. It could be a coffee shop. It could be a taco truck. It could be a fancy restaurant. But if you simply let your fears hold you back and saying like, oh my God, if I get too big, then I could lose it all. Well, yeah, you could. But what fun is life focusing on all the things that could go wrong? I would rather focus on all the things that could go right. Subdue your ego, not your passion. Mm, There you go. I love it, man. Yeah. Yeah, It is interesting how minimalism actually is this philosophy that kind of helps you live your big life. It's more time, more freedom, more passion, more experiences, more contentment, more contribution. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I heard you say originally, you asked someone like, what is your rich life? 
And then you said silence. But I thought you were, that was a response. Like that seems like my response. Most oh, of the time. I was like, yeah, my rich life is silence like 90% of the time. And I've created a life. You know, my, my wife and I live apart about 50% of the time. Okay. And so we have sef- separate residences 50% of the time, right? Now I live in a little 200 square foot place that works really well for me. It's very stark. It's brutalist. It's silent. But I'm not prescribing that to anyone. This is what's going to make you happy. No, for a lot of people, that might feel like prison or it might feel like deprivation. And so it may not be enough for them. But for me, that's enough because there's this quiet and there's a lot of truth in in the quiet. And I love that you are compassionate enough to say, that might not be for you. It works for me. The the more that you turn your dial up, what I call your money dial up, and you really refine your rich life, that kaleidoscope starts to to clarify and your rich life comes into focus and yours is always different than somebody Mm -hmm. else's. Always. If Mm -hmm. I told people how much I spent and how much I don't spend on certain things, they would think I was a lunatic. And that's exactly the way it should be. Mm -hmm. The more you dial it up and dial it down, it becomes unique. And that's how it should be. So I love that you have the compassion to say, hey, this for me. Maybe not for you, probably not for you, but for me. Yeah. And if this is for you, great. If not, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. We have another question here from Lil. I'm Lil. I'm a 20-year-old living in Perth, Australia. I want to learn as much as I can about personal finance so I can set myself up well for the future. I've been looking at investing and how and where to save. I don't have any debt. There are so many books and lots of websites, but I can't decipher who's trying to sell me their brand and what is genuine help. I know the American and Australian finance systems are different, but I was wondering if you guys have any recommendations of sources that aren't biased to their own company. Ramit, it is true that where you're investing, there are going to be some subtle nuances, but I think the principles are pretty much the same, regardless of where you are in the world. And I'd be interested to hear what you have to say to her. I'm so glad she's asking this question at age 20. I asked the same question when I was 20, and I was really fortunate. The one thing I did right in any of my 20s was at age 20, I started investing in, or age 21, 401k, and getting the company match when I worked in the corporate world. And I've continued that habit since then, especially when I couldn't afford it. Mm. I remember when I left the corporate world, I made $23,000 that year, but I still put 15% of it away every single, it was automated. Yes. And that's one thing you talk about is automating. So when you're talking to Lil here, what, what do you have to say to her? I feel a lot of compassion for her because if you are just starting out on your money journey, it's very confusing. And you know that a lot of people are trying to take advantage of you, but you don't know how. Mm. It's like walking into the casino. You're like, they're trying to get me, but I don't even know the game that's being played. So you feel like prey. And for a 20-year-old, the fact that she's asking this question, amazing. I I also want to reassure you uh, listening that even if you make a few money mistakes, it's okay. Everybody makes money mistakes, especially in your 20s. You're going to incur a couple fees you didn't know about. You might choose something that's not the right account. Big deal. Get it right now before the numbers start to get big. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be much more knowledgeable. Now, Mm -hmm. allow me to just share a couple of scams that a lot of people don't know about that are happening all over the world. All right. So everybody right now 
pull out your phone, text your mom, text your dad, be like, hey, do you have a financial advisor out of curiosity? And they'll be like, oh yeah, we use Chet. Chet's so nice. Chet's been with our family for 34. I'm like, Chet's a fucking scammer. <laughs> I'm about to show you how to find out. So you go, oh, out of curiosity, um, how much does Chet charge you? And mom and dad can be like, oh, um, I don't know. You know, we it, it, it's in the prospectus somewhere, that document somewhere. You know, just pull out that thing, screenshot it for me. Take a look. Take a look most times it's going to be a percentage, mm -hmm. okay? And it's going to be something like 1%. And this is where I start to get pissed because 1% doesn't sound like that much. Oh, 1%, that's fine. Somebody's paying attention to my money. They're keeping an eye on my portfolio. I really, just like I have a, a somebody to do my gardening, I have a financial... <laughs> Let me explain the fucking math. 1% over the course of your lifetime means you will pay approximately 28% of your returns to this advisor. Oh, wow. If you are paying 2%, you're paying over 50% of your returns directly to that advisor. Wow. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? Wow. For example, if somebody comes and washes your car, do you pay them a percentage of your net worth? Mm. No. You pay them 20 bucks, 50 bucks, even 200 bucks, but never a percentage. Mm. So your parents, if they use somebody like Chet, a commission-based financial advisor, they are losing thousands, mm. th hundreds of thousands over the course of their lifetime. Now, do am I saying all financial advisors are bad? No. There are times you can use a financial advisor. I've even hired one myself. I hired one specifically because I had a specific project. I was like, take a look at my asset allocation. I want a second set of eyes. They charged me a few hundred bucks an hour. I was happy to pay it. Great. If you choose to use a financial advisor, which the majority of people do not need, never pay a percentage-based fee. It's mm. called AUM, Assets Under Management. Pay an hourly fee, pay a project fee, but do not pay a percentage fee. All right, so that's the number one thing that's happening that people don't even realize. I feel so sorry for your parents, but paste the chat responses in the chat below because I want to see what they say. You're about to find out, you know, Ma, Ma and Pa have been getting... Uh, taken to the cleaners for about 25 years. There are a bunch of other scams, high expense ratios, uh, active investing. We can talk about all that, but that's one that I am on a crusade to end. I want you to take control of your money. And if you decide you need help after reading a book, my book, other books, what watching my show, you can get an advisor, but never pay a percentage-based fee. Yeah. Man, my uh, one experience with an advisor is uh, when I started to go to college and I started at like 23, 24 because uh -huh. um, work was paying for it. But long story short, there's, you know, you got to fill out the FAFSA stuff and then they send you these checks and they don't even ask you if you want the checks. So they're just like, here's a check for like five grand. Here's a check for 12 grand. And some of them are subsidized and some of them are unsubs unsubsidized. So the subsidized, you have time before it starts to collect interest. So I got like a $5,000 subsidized check and I was like, oh, I wonder if I can invest this over the next four years or five years okay. and maybe make a little bit of money on it and then pay it off before it starts to collect interest. Okay. And this was in, yeah, it was around 2008. Like two, I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that go. Oh yeah. So uh, I, I didn't end up doing it because something just like rubbed me the wrong way. I must've, it must've been earlier, 2007. It just rubbed me the wrong way with the finance guy. I was like, this, this doesn't... Oh, you talked to a guy. I went in and I'm like, I got four grand. Here's what I want to do Are, with Do it. you want to say the company that you went into? I don't, uh, I, I don't actually. Because I, I love do, to I do remember the company, companies. but I don't know. You probably uh, know the company. It's probably the only one anyone ever thinks of. Anyway. Um, <laughs> TK you know exactly Coleman Financial. What, yeah, that's right. You know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. But no, I went in there and yeah, I like it just rubbed me the wrong way because there was no... He, I was really looking for someone to help me to understand the risk. Yeah. He never once under, helped me understand the risk of it. He was just, it was like all upside. Yeah. Give me your 
your money. They're, and they're I was salesmen. Yeah. And I walked out of there and I, re- I returned that check. And then, then, yeah, the crash happened. And I was like, oh, I'm really glad I didn't do that. He so, never, he never mentioned that this could happen. <laughs> right, yeah, right. You would never, by the way, you would never borrow money to invest money in the stock market. No. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't go to the bank and say, hey, I need a loan for $4,000, $5,000. What are you going to do with it? Um, well, I just want to buy some individual stocks or maybe put right. the S&P 500. You would never do that. No, no. no. So no. underneath that story, which really enrages me because why on earth are they taking college kids' money? And all, there's so many things that are wrong with that. But I, I want to highlight a couple things I want everybody to know. First off, you know, there's this phrase, timing the market, right? What is timing mm. the market? And that's individual people, any of us, or even professionals on Wall Street saying, don't invest right now because it's not a good time or the economy is going bad. Don't do that, okay? Timing the market will almost certainly result in you losing money. Yes. Now, this is very yes. hard to believe. I cover the research in the book. But in general, even the fanciest Wall Street investors fail to beat the market. Like, basically, that means they fail to beat a low-cost index fund, which you and I can buy right now, 80% of the time. Don't try to guess if the market's going up or down. You have no idea. I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. Instead, you just set up your accounts to automatically invest every single month. Mm-hmm. Just take yourself out of the equation. Doesn't matter what's in the news. Doesn't matter what's going on anywhere. Every single month on the exact same day, your account is going to automatically invest 50 bucks, 500 bucks, 5,000 bucks. And over time, research shows that is the most effective way versus trying to time the market. Yeah, yeah. In fact, whenever I hear like, oh, it's it's time to, to sell, it, 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 don't buy. Like what I hear is like, oh, like the stock market's on sale right now. Like it's okay to That's like, right. yeah, just keep yeah. putting some, a little bit in. Yeah, yeah. What are some of these other scams that you wanted to talk about? Um, right now, the biggest scam going around TikTok is uh, uh, whole life insurance. Oh, these fucking the scammers. These, mm. Yeah, so this is what they do. They, they, you get some guy in an ill-fitting uh, like Under Armour shirt, okay? Always wearing <laughs> shorts. And under, I'm like, first of all, I'm not taking financial advice from a guy wearing Under Armour. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and second of all, he he's like eating lunch. I, everyone watching this knows exactly who I'm talking about. They're like eating lunch in, in their like office cafeteria and, and someone comes in like... And they go, hey, uh, I, I really want to invest a bunch of money, but I'm not sure what to do. What should I do? And he goes, let me show you. And he walks over to the whiteboard. He goes, all right, let me break it down. If you're investing in a 401k, you're losing money. Roth IRA, that's for losers. Here's what you do. You borrow against the money. You invest it. The whole, the whole life insurance company pays you this, and it's free money. I go, I'm going to fucking kill you right now. <laughs> so it's, it's like watching a car dealer scam somebody in real time. Ooh. It's awful. And the math seems compelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems, it's it's like, oh my God, this is free money. And then I look in the comments, there's like 8,000 TikTok people going, um, interested, interested, interested. And I'm like, you guys are doomed. Yeah. Like I, I truly wish. So let me, let me explain very simply that in personal finance, you want to passively invest, which means you do not want to be picking individual stocks and you do not want the middlemen. As much as possible, you want to eliminate middlemen. What that means is if an insurance... Co- First of all, insurance is insurance. It's not investments. Yeah. Do not treat insurance like an investment. Yeah. And yeah. they go, well, well, it's it can work for wealthy people. I go, First of all, I know you're not wealthy. And second of all, I'm wealthy. And I know what you get out of that. And I'm not investing in that horse shit. <laughs> so even as you get to the higher levels of personal finance, the fundamentals are the same. Just like uh, NBA players still practices their same practices they did in the early days. They're practicing dribbling. I'm doing passive investing, low-cost index funds, 
Keep it simple. Mm-hmm. That's all you got to do. And stay away from whole life insurance, please. And you're not against <laughs> life insurance. Like no. term life insurance. Term is fine. I have term. Yeah. Ryan has term. Term yeah. is great. If you have a dependent, yeah. great or yeah. multiple. But there's zero reason to buy whole life insurance unless you just want to take money out of your pocket and give it to your whole life insurance salesman's pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll mm-hmm. dive into some more scams here in a bit. But let's turn it over to social media. We got some questions. Here's one from Christine on Facebook. Can Ramit talk about the difference between the cost of living now compared to when he wrote, I will teach you to be rich? Mm, wow. Well, housing is more expensive. That's the primary mm. difference. So when I wrote the first version of I Will Teach You Be Rich, I was writing it in 2007, 2008, came out in 09. And, I, you know, the, the publishers, after a few years, are like, hey, you got to update this book. I was like, why? I wrote this book to be timeless. I'm not going to update mm-hmm. it. And after like seven, eight years, they're like, hey, 10 years is coming up. You really do need to update it. So I took a look. I'd been keeping notes on everything that changed in the world. And so I opened up that doc and there are new accounts. There's uh, some of the accounts that I recommended in the past. I stripped them because they've turned evil. I was like, you're out of here. Mm. Um, but I'd also gotten married and I had accumulated wealth. And you know, there were new things I wanted to add about relationships. Housing was expensive for a lot of people, but has gotten hyper expensive. Mm -hmm. Not only here in LA, but everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the research on this is like staggering. You know, in zero states, if you make minimum wage, you cannot afford a one bedroom. That is true in 50 states. Mm -hmm. That is like mind blowing. Yeah. And so one of the things that that I talk about, that's why I talk about systemic change because you can't save enough on lattes to afford housing right now. It's just, it's impossible for the median earner or even more than median Mm -hmm. earner. Um, Aside from that, I think there are a lot of uh, new accounts that make things easier there um, in terms of uh, like bank accounts, transfers, things like that. Cost of living wise, housing is the primary, it dwarfs everything else. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to sit here and tell you salary is 13% more expensive because it's irrelevant when your housing price has doubled. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's the thing that is the, and that is uh, the primary area when I look at people's conscious spending plans where they get into trouble. Number one is housing. Number two is their cars mm-hmm. by far nothing, it's almost nothing else that matters. It's never lattes. It's not Amazon. It's not eating out. Okay, here and there, it's a hundred bucks extra. It's housing and cars. That is where we should focus when it comes to spending. Mm, But they really do pick on the lattes, man. Dude, can I just tell you, like, do you know how many people, so when they come on my show, I have their entire spending report. I can see everything, right? And I, now... I can very quickly understand what's going on. So I'll sit there, I go, okay, what do you think's going on? They go, oh my God, we never get ahead. We take one step forward, two steps back. It's just, it's endless. I go, okay, so what do you think's going on? They go, and, and this is where what they think comes up. They go, she spends too much at Target. And I go, <laughs> we're going to do this. Or he, he, every time he goes out, he orders two desserts. I go, Okay, so I got to play it out, right? I can't just come in here and be like, you're wrong. That's not, I've learned that's not effective to just verbally eviscerate someone right on the spot. So I go, tell me about that. Let's actually look at it. And, you know, the Target thing, maybe they spend an extra $30 and they go, it's more than we budgeted. I go, do you keep a budget? They're like, no. Uh, I go, how do you know it's more than you budget? They, they go, it's basically a vibe. Like, this is how people treat when I go, yeah. uh... Do I feel like I have enough? Do I feel like I can afford it? It's literally vibe-based budgeting. Mm. So I go, first of all, you don't need a budget. I don't even keep a budget. I hate budgets. Throw that out. We need to track four numbers. Your fixed costs, 
your savings rate, your investment rate, and your guilt-free spending. Those are the four numbers, and I've got specific uh, amounts that I recommend for each. If you decide you love Target for some reason, and you want to add an extra 200 bucks, God bless. I'll show you how to do that. But what ultimately happens as we unravel it, it's like a puzzle, is they realize, oh my God, we are spending way too much on our car. Mm -hmm. Then the common thing that happens is most people just look at the monthly payment. That's another scam, is people buy big things based on the monthly payment. Do not do that. That's for financially unsavvy people. Savvy people always look at TCO total cost of ownership. Yes. The car that you're buying for $40,000, when you net it out with gas, insurance, taxes, et cetera, is actually going to cost you $63,000. Can you afford that? Well, you never thought about it. You don't even know what affording it means. So mm. that is where we start to unravel the key levers. Mm. You, you don't need to cut back 5% on everything. That's pointless and it's aggravating. Mm. You need to surgically attack the two or three main areas that are causing trouble. Get on top of those. Also focus on increasing your income and automate things. Move on with your life. Yeah. Man, I appreciate you working in this space and being real about what's really holding people back. I'm not going to name any names, but I've just seen too much talk about clipping coupons. Can I name names? Cutting back. Go for it. <sighs> really? Yeah. I mean, how many people here grew up thinking, feeling guilty because Dave Ramsey told you, you know, you're, you need to cut back on everything. You mm. need to cut coupons. You, it's your fault and you need to shrink and shrink and shrink your life. So I heard it from uh, Susie Orman. Oh, Susie Orman. Yeah. I like Susie. Susie Orman. I like okay. Susie, but there is an over-focus in the personal finance world on cutting back. And I have no problem. I do think you should cut costs mercilessly on the things that are not important to you. But let me just tell you what happens when you go up to the average person, even the person who comes to me. They go, Ramit, I need help. I'm in desperate, dire straits. We're about to get divorced. If I were to go, okay, well, I look at your spending. Oh my God, you're spending way too much on coffee. Oh my God, way too much on eating out. This is how they react. Look at my body. Mm. Okay, I'll change it. They're never going to change mm. it. Nobody wants to be told what to do, even when they come to me about to get divorced. I've found it's much more effective. It's also much more fun to be like, hey, what's your rich life? Let's start there. What gives you joy? Hmm. Yeah. And once you understand that cutting back $3 a day is actually not going to do anything for you. It actually makes no difference on your overall financial life. But you're currently paying $600 in phantom costs a month for your house or your car that you didn't even know about. And they go, oh my God. They understand how the game is being played. Mm. That to me is a gift. Yeah. I think yeah. that oh. what Dave Ramsey does really well is he helps people get out of debt. I agree. And uh, with the debt snowball specifically, I mean, because it not only addresses the mechanics, but as what you do, it addresses the psychology behind it because it may not even be the right thing to pay off the, the debts in the order from smallest to biggest, yeah. but it helps you get that momentum. And so what I love about what, what Dave does is, yeah, the, the budgeting stuff is really difficult for people because as you illustrated earlier, people say, it's not in my budget, but they don't even have a budget. Yep. Or I don't have enough money, but I also don't know how much money I have. Yeah. I don't know how much money I make. I don't know how much money I spend. Or as Ryan once had a client who basically said, hey, um, he asked, what well, is that in your budget? And they said, well, I don't need a budget to tell you that I'm broke. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I've never heard that one. Yeah. Now that, okay. I agree. And I will say, I think that if someone is in severe debt and they say have an, an overspending problem and they just want someone to tell them what to do, mm -hmm. 
I would send them to Dave Ramsey. Mm -hmm. However, I think that there are costs of being taught about money as purely restriction. Mm. I think that once you internalize that, it is very difficult to let yourself out of the cage. And truthfully, there's only so long people can go being restricted by money. Mm. And so my belief is that you can actually feel joy around money. You can feel adventure, curiosity, generosity. Yes, you will need to restrict parts of your life, but they're the parts you chose, yeah. the parts that are not meaningful to you. And so I've just, you know, I, I treat people like I want to be treated and I want to be treated like a smart person. Sure. Talk to me, teach me the mechanics, help me understand where I'm having blind spots, but ultimately let me make the decision because then once you leave the room, I'm going to be able to carry it forward. Yeah. I mean, it's two different yeah. philosophies. It's like what, yes. what philosophy works for you. Yes. I think you and Ramsey would both agree. Like if you're, if you feel like you're broke, you need a budget to at least know how broke you are before you can... Dave and I would probably agree that people buying $75,000 trucks cannot, who can't afford it, should stop buying those fucking trucks. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. when I talk to, when I talk about trucks online, people go berserk. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, it's religious. Yeah. Right? And I go, listen, this $75,000 truck, when you actually add in all the costs, it nets out total cost of ownership is like $108,000. I'm like, you make $70,000 a year. I go, how did you decide how you can afford that? And of course, you know what they say? Hmm. Well, my buddy Jack at the car dealer told me that my monthly payment will only be 500 bucks a month. I go, that's just the beginning. Yeah. What about all the phantom costs? So we would agree that you got to be careful about what you buy because those big things will saddle you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think hmm. we've had Dave on the show before. We've been on his show a bunch and I love Dave. I think if... Truthfully, if we got you both here uh, on the show together, you think we'd chop it up? I th yeah, you'd agree on ninety-five percent of the things. Yeah. Okay, hey, I'd love to see that happen. Now that's an interesting. <laughs> Next time I come here, I'm, you guys be like, "We got a surprise guest." Dave walks in, the car, <laughs> and then the music starts playing. <laughs> he's, got, he's got, he's got, he's got his whole entourage with him. <laughs> <laughs> they just gang up on it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> We're meat to ass. Dave pulls out one of those like little metal clubs. <laughs> Are you know? How many guns Dave has? <laughs> You're screwed, man. <laughs> no, but what I would say is I, I think that you two use different terminology. And so we, you and I had this argument last time you were on the show. You were like, I don't do budgets. I hate budgets. And then you spent the next five minutes describing what I would call a budget. That's not a budget. We <laughs> yeah. talked about it last time. No, you said that's not a budget. I'm yeah. like, but that's what I call a budget. Yeah. And so TK, you, you talk about this from time to time. It's like getting, it doesn't matter what the terms are, but getting clear on the terms. I think, what do you mean by budget? You and I just mean different things. When you, yeah. What you do, I call it a budget. I know, you call I saw it the comments. And that was yeah. a fun discussion. And mm -hmm. I would encourage everyone to go back and check that out last time. The comments were good too. Some people disagree, some agree. I love the discussion. Yeah. I want people to get engaged because if you're engaged with money and you're sitting here, first of all, if you're debating what a budget is on a comment section, you're a freaking nerd, okay? <laughs> so, but for everyone else who's only thought of money as something negative, something obligatory, mm -hmm. I want them to listen to this and to see this and to be like, oh my God, someone is actually saying it's okay to buy a nice shirt or to yeah. go out and treat your partner to a beautiful restaurant. Yeah. Never heard anyone talk like that. And then second, you're using the mechanics of money to do it responsibly. Amazing. Yeah. I think this is where you two would differ. He would say that it's irresponsible if you're in debt to do any of those things. And I think you're saying 
within reason, it may not actually be irresponsible because it helps you improve your relationship with finances. It helps mm-hmm. bring the, the joy in into money. But I think fundamentally, besides a, a few subtle nuances, I think you two align a lot because what you're really talking about is how, do, how can I be responsible with money? And I think Dave talks a lot about the joy of money once you're out of debt and once mm. you're able to contribute beyond yourself and you know, give to other people once you've built those principles. Now, you may get there via a slightly different path, but I don't even know that it's that different, honestly. I, I do love the focus, like the focus on generosity, I think is important and often lacking in personal finance. Um, and, you know, we saw that during COVID when people were, you know, servers were not making any money. People were out of jobs. And I think that was an amazing time to f- where my wife and I started sharing some of the philosophies that we developed around giving more. And even when I travel, sometimes I'll show people, you know, we, we have our own money rules and we, cr- I have my own individual money rules. We have our couple's money rules. And one of them is $20 a night for housekeeping. Now that we can afford that. If somebody is watching this going, I can afford five bucks a night. Fantastic. But to create rules where you don't have to think about it anymore. It's automated. And, yeah, and you just go, this is important to me. This is a personal value to me. Yeah. And so if generosity is important to you, it might be $20 a night at housekeeping or $10. It might be every time we go out, we are tipping a minimum of whatever, yeah. five bucks, 20 bucks, whatever. I think that we can start to really see how money can shape and be shaped by your values. And that to me yeah. gets exciting. Yeah. I think what makes, to me, Ramit's, emphasis unique is that there's kind of like this distinction implicit in everything he says between an adult mindset and a childish mindset when it comes to money. The childish mindset is when you treat principles like this objective list of do's and don'ts without a Mm -hmm. higher point of reference. I have to do this. I don't get to do this. We see it in health. Let's say you decide that you won't eat meat anymore and you're sitting around with a bunch of friends who are eating meat. And if you go, well, I don't get to have any meat. Mm. You're treating yourself like a child because you're obeying a rule and you're refusing to own the fact that what's really happening is you're choosing to create the life that you really want by voluntarily following a set of ideas that can get you there. And you can take a good set of ideas and apply them childishly, or you can take a good set of ideas and apply them like an adult. And what Ramit is saying is, look, if you're gonna make the decision to cut that expense, Don't treat yourself like a child. Don't do it because some thought leader told you that you're a bad person who's going to get slapped on the hand with the ruler if you pay for that. Do it because you love the life that you want to have and you can choose to do otherwise and you won't be a bad person if you choose to do it, but you're going to own the life that you want to make by consciously committing to an intentional spending habit, you know? Yeah. Oh, dude, that, that speaks to the, when, when people, uh, when he asks people, what do you want? Oh, I want to do whatever I want when I want that. What they're really saying is, is I want to, I want to live an impulsive life. Mm. And they show that when you're like, what do you want? They're like, Oh, I don't know what I want. It's like, so you want to, oh, I don't have any impulses right now. I'll tell you when I get those impulses, <laughs> but that's, that's how a child would act where yeah. an adult would know exactly what they want and whether the impulses come or go, like they're clear on what they want. That's a great point. It's a get. great, a beautiful way of putting it. I've never actually heard my philosophy described that way. So, wow, I really appreciate that. And to encourage people to own their decisions. Yeah does not make you a good person or bad person if you spend money one way or another. I actually don't mind at all. There are people who spend money using my philosophy on stuff that I don't agree with. Fine. It's their rich life, but they got to own it. 
and they have to understand the mechanics of it and the psychology of it. I just love the way you articulated that. That was awesome. Hey, man, well, I love the way you gave it to us. Thank you. To man. articulate. <laughs> Let's check into Facebook. Looks like Anne has a question for us. Can you talk about the struggles of saving for retirement in this economy? We're doing our best, but even with good jobs and owning our home, it's still a struggle. Man, mm. for me, everything that is easy today was once a struggle because we didn't have the template set up. We didn't have an understanding of it. It seemed so nebulous or complex. We didn't know how to simplify it. And so I think quite often when we're talking about the struggles of saving for retirement, it seems so overwhelming when something is overwhelming, just like with minimalism. Mm. If someone's house has 300,000 items in it and they don't even know where to get started, they just don't get started at all. Yeah, Yeah. I I see exactly the same thing with money. There are a few phrases people say that I just out of turn just don't really believe. Now, I'll indulge them. I'll ask them questions, but I just don't believe them. So one of them is uh, (laughs) uh, when people come on my show and they go, um, it's gotten really expensive at the grocery store. I go, oh, it has? They go, yeah, inflation is, is just crazy. And then I go, I already know where this is going. So I go, oh, inflation. I go, um do you track what you spend at the grocery store? They go, no. I go, out of curiosity, how do you know that inflation is a... Oh, well, it's just, it's inflation. Again, vibes. (laughs) It's all vibes. And so I don't mind that we have feelings about money. I don't mind it. In fact, if anything, I'm out there telling people, emotions are real. I want you to understand what you truly feel about money. But when somebody says, in this economy, I can guarantee you one thing. They said the same thing in 2005. 2010, 2015, 2020, they're going to say the same thing no matter what the economy is. Yeah. The economy has been fantastic for a long time. It's also been terrible for a long time, depending on the period you look at, depending on where you are in the socioeconomic strata, mm-hmm. but it's vibes. And so rather than telling somebody, like I can go in there with all these charts from BLS and I can show you all the job reports, employment is fantastic. That's not going to change how they feel. Mm-hmm. So instead, I would say, well, where, what are you saving the money for? Mm-hmm. How much do you need? Okay, let's get a little bit more mechanical here. And uh, one of the things that I'll often do with people, I'll say, show me all your assets. Like how much you have invested, show much, all this stuff. And I go, have you actually calculated how much this is worth? They go, no, I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. So you can all follow along, go on a compound interest calculator. Let's pretend you're 40 years old. You you've got, let's say, $25,000 invested and you're adding $5,000 a year, you can assume a 7% return rate. If you don't know why, you can look at uh, chapter seven of my book. And people's eyes are blown open when they realize how much money, the money they've already invested will turn into. So think about it. I actually find it quite startling. People will spend their entire lives agonizing over money, saving money, scrimping and pinching and opening up an investment account, but they just forget about one thing. How much is this damn thing actually going to give me? Mm. And when I show them it, which is a gift, a lot of them go, whoa, some people on the podcast, you can hear them. They they realize they're going to have a million. That might not be enough for them. Some of them realize they're going to have 8 million. Like, what the hell are you going to do with $8 million? Your shoes are 20 years old. You don't even know how to shop for nice shoes. <laughs> and that's when they realize like, oh my God, we've been over-indexing on saving and mm. saving it. And we stopped, we stopped short of actually understanding how to spend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. This is another area where he would align with Dave Ramsey, where Dave's like, hey, you don't have to need to put more than the 15% away. Now, you might say, well, it, you can change the percentage however you want. Yeah. But I do agree with the over-index. And we, we can get to a point where it's like, I'm going to save 90% yeah, of my money. But mm-hmm. I don't, but I'm also going to deprive myself of basic living necessities yeah. so that I can meet this childlike number, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, man. Um, I forget mm. what I forget what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. Oversaving is a real thing. Yeah. It's just not talked about. It's, if you notice in the press, if you open up any article, it's almost always about how tough things are in this economy. Mm. And that's where the vibes come from. Remember, they mm-hmm. say the, the press says the same thing no matter how good the economy is. Record unemployment right now. Mm-hmm. It's like quite mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Still this economy. And so people absorb these vibes. Mm-hmm. That's why one of the number one questions I'm getting right now is about inflation. Mm-hmm. Why is anyone paying attention to inflation if you have an investment portfolio? It already accounts for inflation. Mm-hmm. You're already beating inflation. So people are like, Ramit, did you change anything because of inflation? I go, no. I hardly ever change anything. I log in every few months. I change something maybe once every year or two years, minor rebalancing. I don't need to change anything. I have a system. I set it. I forget it. I'm living my rich life. Yeah. I I do remember what I was going to say now. So it's like with minimalism, people, one of the biggest arguments is like, well, you don't consider poor people. And, you know, when you think about poor people, um, you know, when you, uh, and you think about them getting rid of their things, it's just callous. It's, you know, yes. it's, it's blind. And, 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 it, and if that was the truth, I mean, even still, I'd be like, but it still does help a lot of people though, you know, but, but what, what so what you were saying about inflation, I'm, I'm assuming people come at you up with the same thing sometimes about like, well, you know, those, that three bucks that it costs for an extra, for a carton of eggs yeah. extra, um, that really has an effect on, on poor people. But here's the thing is over, over half of the Americans in the United States don't save any money at all. 62% of people don't even have $1,000 saved up. And when you look at, I don't know if you saw this recent article, but over 50% of the American households who make over $100,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck, which yeah. to me says that like, I wish I could say it was an income problem, but it really sounds like it's a spending problem to me. And uh, yeah, it, does, it doesn't just affect low income folk. I think that the question about, are you speaking to all demographics is a real one. And I think that, you know, it's one thing to sit here and talk about, oh, if your rich life is valeting your car on Hollywood and and someone's like, dude, I don't eat out more than like once every six months because I can't afford it. That's real. There yeah. are vastly different experiences in America. I will say that I recently saw an article talking about, you know, inflation and the effect on groceries. And it was presented, in my opinion, in a slightly misleading way because they said, you know, broccoli is 52% more expensive. Okay, fair enough. I don't debate the number, but 52% sounds really big. Mm -hmm. How much is the average person spending on broccoli per month? (laughs) I mean, I'm spending zero dollars on broccoli. (laughs) Let's talk about what actually is affecting things. It is housing. Mm -hmm. That's what's causing it. And so we're not, I'm not going to sit here and talk about broccoli. I just do not give a shit. It's not important for the average person. Housing matters. Let's talk about why all these NIMBYs are not allowing anyone to build housing. That matters. Now, from an income and spending problem, uh, income, you know, income has actually gone up across demographics recently, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. I want that. Um, I think some of that data I, is a little questionable. When people, you know, I, I talked about vibes. Mm-hmm. When people say they're living paycheck to paycheck, a lot of those folks are like, yeah, I'm living check to check after I invest $19,000 in my 401k every year. Yeah. I go, listen, dude, you're not paycheck to paycheck if you're maxing out your 401k. Mm-hmm. So yes, we have spending issues 
Yes, we have income issues for some. That's what makes these things so complicated. Yeah. Like you and me and anyone listening and watching, we're in all different part, parts of our journey. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why you know we, we want to be able to take the, the rules that help us and apply them and not try to become a master of all of personal finance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're illustrating here and what you illustrate so well with uh, your book and, and with the journal in particular is the future is birthed out of a series of nows. It's not about wow. some hypothetical thing that's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now. I will start investing when I can afford it. Mm. I will start saving money when I can afford it. Because if you're not saving money when you can't afford it, you also probably won't be saving it when you can. And you're mm. a great example where you said you made you know, roughly $22,000 and you put 15% away. Fantastic. Now, what kind of lifestyle changes did you have to make to support that? Everything. You know, and I don't think that was sustainable long-term yep. either. However, I felt like I was living a richer life that year. I took a 90% pay cut, leaving the corporate world to that life, but it was a much richer life for me because I got my time back. Mm. I got my quiet back. I got my hours back. I got rid of the car, the car payments, the debt first. And so I didn't have any of the stress that was associated with the previous life. Mm. And you did it intentionally, right? Classic, classic purpose of, of minimalism and of the rich life is like, I'm going to do it my way. It might not be what everyone else does, but I'm going to do it my way and I will accept the risks and rewards of doing that. So I think sometimes, you know, sometimes I talk to young parents and they've been using some of my stuff for a while and then they just had a son or daughter and their system goes off off track. They can't save as much. There's all these unexpected expenses. And one of the things I tell them is, look, there are times where you can give yourself a little grace. Mm-hmm. First couple years of having kids, don't worry. You used to save 15%. Cut that number down to five and give yourself some breathing room. It's mm. okay because this is not a sprint. We are talking about a rich life, not a rich year. Yes. Mm. So if sometimes you need to let off the gas a little bit, go ahead. You know, if you have a 50th birthday and you go, you know what? I want to take a little bit out of my savings account. I've accounted for everything else. I know my mechanics, but this is important to me. My dad is turning 75. We're going to do something amazing that nobody's ever forget. It, forget. Yes, yeah. money is not meant to be saved alone. It is meant to be spent on creating a rich life. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream, Alabama, who's got some questions for us. By the way, thank you for being a private podcast subscriber. We certainly appreciate that. What do you got? We have a question here from Rachel. My investments are with Vanguard now and I use the digital advisor to manage my accounts. Is this a better option than a financial advisor? Okay, great. Great question. So Vanguard is a great company like Fidelity and Schwab. They all offer low cost investments. I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, Vanguard recently started offering a relatively low cost advisor. They charge about 0.3%. So if you remember 1% over the course of your life takes a lot of money. Now it's kind of unusual for Vanguard to offer a percentage based fee. In general, I don't think you need to do it. However, if you want to do that, I'm okay with it. If you know, Vanguard allows you to cancel at any time. So my most savvy students and readers, if they're on Vanguard, a small percentage of them do it. They go, hey, I want to talk to an advisor. I want to just make sure all my stuff is set up right. Am I missing anything, any blind spots? And they do it and they cancel it. Okay, I'm okay with that. Vanguard's okay with that. They've even said that. But again, 
I would strongly caution people not to do a percentage-based payment over the long term because it costs you way more than you will realize. Mm. What do you think of robo-investors like uh, Betterment? Yeah, they're good. So I think that if you are deciding between Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, and a robo-advisor, you're already going to make a good decision. Yeah, uh, They charge a little bit over a little bit over what Vanguard charges. Um, the good part is that they have a beautiful user interface. It's very friendly yeah. for ordinary people to log in and understand. The bad news, again, this is a minor, minor quibble, is is it worth the extra 0.3, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5%? Personally, I say no. I don't have my money there. But if that's what's going to get you over the hump to start investing, fine fine. I don't want to quibble. I, I lay out what I believe is a good amount of fees to pay. But if someone's like, look, Ramid, I'm just not going to do it if I don't have this easy to use UI. I go, fine, fine. Mm-hmm. What else we got in the, uh, in the live stream? Here's a question from Hannah. <clears throat> what do you look for in tax professionals? Yeah. I have someone who prepares my taxes, but I would like guidance on things like how much to donate yearly. Who helps with that type of guidance? That's a great question. Uh, so you should find an accountant. Um, the best accountants are going to be found through personal referrals. And that would be asking any business owners you know, uh, any people who are a little bit savvier, probably tend to be older, talk to a dentist, if you know, talk to folks around you. Um, I love that this person is asking about donating. That's amazing. Um, let me give you my philosophy on taxes, just so you know, and you can develop your own philosophy. So um, I would start off on a scale of one to 10. How aggressive are you with taxes? 10 is Al Capone. Okay. <laughs> uh, and two is me. Two's like, I want to sleep at night. I'm super conservative. I'd rather overpay. I have no problem paying my taxes. I feel great writing a fat check. So you want to talk to your accountant and tell them that on a scale of one to Al Capone, I'm a whatever. Mm-hmm. My <laughs> belief on taxes is find the low hanging fruit and optimize it. That would be maxing out your 401k, your Roth IRA if you're eligible, HSA if you're eligible. Like do this stuff that gives you tax advantages and then move on with your life, Mm. okay? Your accountant can advise, but there is diminishing returns on letting the tax tail wag the dog. And Mm. that's a a technical phrase in the personal finance world, which is people who make decisions because of taxes. You really should not do that. Taxes come second. First, you make the decision you want to make, then you see what are the tax implications. Any good accountant, We'll be able to advise on that. Here's a question from David. Are fiduciaries different from advisors? Oh my God. Okay, so let's talk about this. This is another scam. not like any any difference at all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so crazy. So I am in the personal finance world. I've been running my business for 20 years. And the way that Wall Street has twisted the term fiduciary even confuses me. Mm. Okay, so fiduciary used to be somebody who has to put your interests first. Mm. You kind of think like, well, what, duh, what else are we talking about? Like when I go to a doctor, aren't they putting my interests first? Mm-hmm. Right. Guess what? Wall Street does not want that because if they put your interests first, they can't sell you horseshit, larded up, uh, high expense ratio funds and whole life insurance and all this stuff that just costs ma and pa money. Mm. Okay. So they started to twist the terms. They go, they actually made this argument in print. They said, if the government requires us to provide fiduciary service, in other words, put you first, 
we will have to reduce the access that mainstream America gets. Let me translate that. That means if you force us to put our customers first, we cannot afford to help people because the only way we can afford it is if we scam them by charging them extortionate fees. Mm. Do you understand how ridiculous this is? Wow. So nowadays, there's fiduciary, there's fee only, there's fee only. It's so confusing. And I'm in the industry and even I'm like, what's the latest now? What'd they tweak today? Mm. That's why as a simple guideline, I say no percentage based, none. Mm. And uh, charge, pay an hourly fee if you want an advisor. But the question you can ask when you evaluate advisors, all this is in chapter uh, six of my book, is are you a fiduciary? You can ask them. If they say no, or they give you some roundabout answer, just leave. But even if they say yes, I'm like, okay, fine. But what the hell does fiduciary even mean anymore? Yeah. And then you ask him the rest of the questions. Mm, I knew I was getting ripped off when I bought that horse shit sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to piggyback on, on uh, the questions to ask advisors. I think another good thing to ask advisors is, hey, what is your definition of a good financial advisor? I'm not ready to hire anyone right now. But what are the questions I should be asking you and other financial advisors? And the reason I think this is important is because it's much easier for people to fake it when they have to talk about their principles mm -hmm. than when they're making you promises. So think about this from the vantage point of being a job interviewer. Someone comes in, they're interviewing for a position for my company, and I say, I'm looking for employees that are creative and hardworking. Well, what's this person going to say if they want to please me? Oh, I'm creative and hardworking. Yeah. On the other hand, <laughs> what if I ask them, what is your definition of a hard worker. Now they're going to tell me exactly what I should expect to see them embody. I'll at least get a glimpse of it, right? Mm -hmm. So when you go to a financial advisor and you're like, I have this much money and I'm trying to grow it. Well, they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. On the other hand, if you say, what makes a great financial advisor? They'll tell you something that you can walk away thinking about and you can cross check that with people who have other opinions. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. I like, there, there are great financial advisors out there. I want to make sure everybody hears me loud and clear. If you need one, for certain situations, like you have a um, divorce, re upcoming retirement, if you have a complex financial situation or a large portfolio, let's say over $1.5 million, it can make sense. In that case, I would recommend speaking to five advisors, uh, again, making sure that they charge an hourly or project fee. I would ask him some of those questions. And I would ask him, have you worked with clients like me? Mm. You know, mm. what What do you think are the particular things about my situation that we would talk about? And I think that would help get you started. I want to talk to you about a few myths, some financial myths. Maybe we can myth bust these or maybe we'll have a... Maybe they're real. Yeah, yeah, they could be. <laughs> the first one you talked about is whole life insurance sucks. You know, we know it. We're told the myth is like, oh, it's a better investment vehicle. But really, whole life insurance is a scam. Nothing wrong with term life insurance. If you're buying insurance, you don't buy your car insurance to as an investment. You don't mm. buy homeowner's insurance or flood insurance as an investment. But buying whole life insurance is also not investment. If you want to get life insurance, great for your dependents. I have for my wife and daughter, if anything were to happen to me, so they're taken care of. I know Ryan does as well. Mm. And that's important. However, the whole life thing is not the vehicle to use. So that's the first one. The yep. second one, commodities, gold, silver, things <laughs> like that. Well, <laughs> um, we hear all the commercials now, right? Make yeah. sure you, in this economy, invest in gold. Oh my God. Yeah. So they appeal to a very particular type of person. Um, and in general, 
commodities, if you really want to make them part of your portfolio Mm -hmm. and you want to make them a small single digit percentage amount, go ahead, be my guest. But you got to have a diversified portfolio before you start randomly picking arbitrary things. That would include gold, silver, Bitcoin, your buddy's bar in Brooklyn who he wants you to put 50K in and he's definitely going to steal your money. All of it. You got to have a diversified portfolio. People go, what's, they don't even know what diversified is. So mm-hmm. if you, I, I own no gold, no silver, no commodities. It makes no sense to me to own this. Do you own any Bitcoin? No. Okay. Why would I? <laughs> I have a TK. I, I want to hear his thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, if, if, if I wanted to, which I don't, I think it's pure speculation, I would restrict myself mm-hmm. to a single digit percentage, like let's say one, 3%. Now, here's the problem. What happens with Bitcoin when it goes way up and it now represents 22% of your portfolio? This mm. happened to a lot of people. Yeah. Now, what they should do if they're following classic financial rules is they should rebalance, which means sell. And put it back into the rest of their portfolio. What person do you think on this planet is going to sell something that's gone from 2% to 22%? Mm. No, they're going to go, I'm a genius. Bitcoin is the way. And so what happens is they now expose themselves to massive risk and it works great while it's going up until it goes down. Yeah. So that's why you want to, if you are going to open the door, the dangerous door of picking individual commodities, stocks, et cetera, you have to be incredibly strict about your rules. Mm. It's basically like, you know those people you see sometimes on Instagram, they have wild cats and wild, they have like a tiger living in their house. You're just like, Mm -hmm. what the fuck? Anyway, (laughs) if you're going to do that, which you definitely should not, because I think it's very illegal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then you really need to have strict rules about where do we let the tiger in? Mm -hmm. Should the tiger be fed? This is a terrible example. Don't buy tigers, okay, for everyone listening. <laughs> but it's the same thing with individual stocks and commodities. Yeah. Be very careful. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about your problem with individual stocks yeah. because it's not that an individual stock is evil or nope. bad. It's just that similar to gold, there's so much more risk. Uh, yes, it's risky because you're picking one individual stock, which compared to a portfolio of, let's say, 500 stocks, like you can get in a typical index fund, one stock could go up and down like this. It could go down 25%. If that's one of 500, it doesn't really affect you. Mm-hmm. But if it's your one stock where you've got 95% of your money in, just because you think it's going to the moon, then you're doomed. Yeah. In the long term, you might make a ton of money, but you also might lose a lot. And I want, it's become so popular these days, especially with uh, GameStop and meme stocks. It's become really popular to have this idea that I'm just going to go all in and treat it like a joke. Money's not a joke. Mm-mm. This is your rich life. You got to take this seriously. And so when I hear people joking around about meme stocks and stuff, it's funny. I mean, it's it's hilarious, but it's not funny beyond the memes that actual people are putting all of their money in. Yeah. I see in the Wall Street Journal, they'll write about an Uber driver, saved $30,000, put it all into one stock and lost it all. Mm. That's a tragedy. And we don't need to do that. You can actually make a considerable amount of money with low-risk, long-term investing. TK, uh, I'd love to do a whole episode about Bitcoin. But yeah. right now, can we get some high-level insights? What are your thoughts? I've never sat down and actually talked to you. We, we talk all oh, the yeah, time, yeah. but I've never yeah. actually talked to you about Bitcoin. Well, one, one quick comment. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, the market is capable of behaving irrationally for a longer amount of time than you are capable of remaining solvent. That's right. right. Mm. And it will wait you out and take all of your money. But this is also another pernicious aspect of the advertising industry. If I own a casino 
Am I going to tell you about the hundred people who come in every day and go broke? Or am I going to tell you about the one guy three years ago who yeah. came in and won $20 million? Right. I know what's good for my casino. I know what story I'm selling you. And that's all we hear about. We, we hear about the people who got rich on GameStop or on Bitcoin or whatever. We don't hear about the many more people that are losing money every day. Yeah. I actually agree with him on Bitcoin. I think there are only two reasons to have something like that. One is you're speculating because you think numbers going to go up. It's going to make me rich, which is just another way of trying to time the market. Mm -hmm. And I have no moral position against gambling. I just think it's important to know that that's what you're doing. Anytime you're gambling and you think you're investing, you're in danger. But as long as you know you're playing at the casino, all right, have fun and play the game in accordance with the level of risk that you can absorb. The other possible reason to use something like Bitcoin is because you believe in the underlying technology and you have a practical use for it. So for instance, Bitcoin SV, you've got different apps and games that you can use it to play. You don't have to buy it and speculate. You can earn it. And all right, if you're using it to play games and you're not basing your financial future on the idea that this is going to go up speculatively, once again, just like going to the casino, have fun. But I agree with him. The overwhelming majority of people that are in crypto right now they don't care about the underlying technology. They're not philosophizing about the implications of what blockchain can help us do. They're not interesting, interested in things like the philosophy of micropayments and the future of data storage or working on the technological side to see how we can solve real problems. They're just collecting magic money mm. with the hope that it's going to go up. And I think most of it, just like the dot-com bubble, most of it's going to be trash. Yeah. And, and you're playing a, a game at the crypto casino. Okay to do as long as you own it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree 100%. Mm -hmm. Spot on. Ladies and gentlemen, Ramit Sabi. Yes. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. The new series awesome. is on Netflix right now, How to Get Rich. Can you talk a bit about the series? I know you and I talked about this a few years yes. ago, right when you at first uh, were working out the, the deal with them. And uh, what can we expect when we, when we go to watch that, which comes out tomorrow, by comes the way? comes out tomorrow. I'm super excited. If you go onto Netflix right now, you can click Add Reminder and it'll pop up tomorrow. I went, this is the first money show that's been on a major network in many, many years. Mm -hmm. Money's really hard to show people. And this was awesome for me because I got to go to different people around the country, individuals, couples, they all had some type of money problem, debt, uh, spending way too much. And instead of sitting down with a spreadsheet and a pocket protector, I was like, let's talk about your rich life. What's going on here? We get to dig into the psychology. I get to see them in their houses. And I got, all I got before I met them was their first name and their financials. Mm. That's all I knew. And so I walked in to meet them only having a very rough idea of what was going on. And I had to discover it. And you will watch along with me. What's wow. fascinating about the financials is you kind of get like this grayscale rainbow, but then you show up and there's a full color life there that you're trying to help them uncover. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's I, I, I saw myself as a detective and a detective does not go in there telling people what's wrong, but it was like, first of all, I want to find out who are you? What's going on? All I know is some numbers and I have some guesses, but I don't know if I'm right or wrong. And then I want to understand, is your life working for you? If some of mm -hmm. this is working and you like it, cool. Let's actually do more of it. Yeah. But what if it's not mm. and you feel stuck? Let's talk about how to change that.
Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. During the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. You can find those show notes at theminimalists.com slash podcast. It looks like Honey has a question for us. If the opposite of love and hate is indifference, but I'm still mad as hell, does that mean I'm still in love? All right. So this is a throwback to, we had Dr. Courtney Warren on the show and uh, she was talking about how the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love and hate is indifferent. So just for some context here, and that video went wild on TikTok. People were responding like, I feel what she's saying, but I still hate him so much. And what Honey is saying here is, look, I get it. Maybe the opposite of love is indifference, but I'm not indifferent right now. I'm still mad as hell for whatever happened. And I'm sorry, honey, that something happened to you here it's weird to say, I'm sorry, honey. I know, I was like, I'm sorry, I, was like I'm like, oh yeah, her name is Honey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, darling. <laughs> I thought you were like, honey, let me tell you something. <laughs> so, is she still in love? Let's put 60 seconds on the clock for Ryan Nicodemus. What do you got for us, Ryan? Anger is a symptom of broken expectations. It's not just anger, though. It's really any negative emotion. Sadness, jealousy, envy, whatever it is, whenever we experience a negative emotion, it's because we have expected something of someone or ourselves that isn't being met. So when it comes to Honey's question, when it comes to any of our negative emotions, we have to ask ourselves, what is the expectation that is being broken? And is it worth having that expectation and risking it for all those negative emotions that we allow to come in holding on to that thing? I love what you're saying here. You're not saying you need to get rid of your expectations, but is it worth holding on to this expectation. Yeah. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock for TK Coleman. Hatred is merely love and disgust. If I'm truly nonchalant, emotionally detached, disinterested, and indifferent, you can't make me hate you. You can't make me hate that thing you're putting in front of my face. Think about some time when maybe a little kid got mad at you and they said, well, you're a you're a green-colored dragon with seven heads. Do you get your feelings hurt? Do you get angry at them? You laughed, right? Because there's nothing in you that's connected to that. There's nothing in you that believes that, that has those questions about yourself. The only thing that can get a rise out of you is the thing that resonates with something that is burning within you. And so when we find ourselves hating people, it's because there is something about them and what they could be or what we could be together with them and they are deviating from that so strongly that it fills us with this extreme disappointment manifesting itself as, I hate you. But if you didn't love them at one time or love them for what they could be, you would never feel that. You can call me anything you want but a chair. <laughs> <laughs> about that. He doesn't even have a chair. We don't even give him a a C word. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite, my, I think the most joyous kid that I've ever met is our friend Griffin House, the very talented musician, his youngest daughter, Clara. And the first time we went over to his house in Nashville, his daughter, the first time I ever met her, she walks up behind me and she whispers in my ear, 
I could set you on fire right now. <laughs> I think she meant it as a compliment. <laughs> What's the compliment? I don't know. It was, some kind of me- it was some kind of metaphor she had going on in her head that <laughs> she, she was thinking, you're well known, but I could really blow you up. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but what she's saying is like, you know, you're the green dragon. I don't take it seriously. Yeah. It was cute. Yeah. But if Jordan just came up to me mid podcast and said, I could set you on fire right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to see it as a threat. <laughs> yeah. So context is everything here. Give me 60 seconds. I'd love to share something with honey. You are not in love. Love is in you. Yes, you may be really pissed off at the person that you love. They may make you angry and you may feel like, I hate you. And you may be struggling to find that indifference or maybe you're just struggling to find the calm that you want. Maybe you had a terrible breakup. Maybe you had a relationship that just ended in a way you didn't want it to end. And now you feel pissed. You feel upset. You feel offended. You're not wrong for that. Your emotions aren't wrong. You feel how you feel. But also understanding that it's not about being in love with that person. The love that you experience means you're witnessing them. You're also witnessing the anger that you feel. You're witnessing those so-called negative emotions and you're seeing how they make you feel. And as soon as you see them, that's when you're able to drop them. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for our right here, right now segment. Here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Speaking of breakups, Ryan, Mm. bye-bye to social Jess. (laughs) Actually, this isn't a breakup at all. Jess is finally graduating from the minimalists. Yeah. We've been working with her for eight years now. Mm Mm-hmm. From We had a very long tour in 2014, and then in 2015, she came on board. She's been all over the world with us. She's been monitoring and posting on our social media for almost a decade now. And then we put we sent her off on maternity leave. Um, when was this? Uh, back in the fall of last year, and she was on maternity leave for three months. She came back, and then she gave us a call a couple weeks ago, and she was like, hey, I'm not able to do this job with the same level of quality that I once brought to it because my life circumstances have changed. And I would feel bad staying in this predicament, putting you in this predicament. Mm. And she goes, this is the most difficult phone call I've ever had to make. And I'm like, oh, I don't want it to be a difficult phone call. We totally understand. Yeah. It, just because your life circumstances have changed and we've done our best to accommodate you and you've done your best to accommodate us. The thing that fits before may not fit in the future. And so she's decided that she wants to leave full-time work to the side. She Mm. needs to let go, at least for this chapter of her life, of full-time work. And to that, I say, brava for that realization. I'm glad you're in a circumstance where you can do that. But Jess, we love you. And we're so grateful for the many years that you've spent with us. I remember when she first called me and she was pregnant and I was sitting here in this chair and we were on FaceTime together. And so this is almost a year ago now. And she goes, Josh, I've got to tell you something. I'm pregnant. And I don't know why my subconscious came to the forefront, TK. And you know, my first words to her were, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) What? (laughs) 
<laughs> it was always I was conflating something in my head, yeah. like maybe my wife was calling me and telling me this. Right. Which still, that response in that moment would not be a very good response. Mm. But I said, "Oh no, we, we've got your back. This is awesome for you. You something you really want. Wonderful." And that illustrates perfectly what we were talking about earlier with Ramit, especially on the private podcast, how your version of a rich life might look appreciably different from my version of a rich life. So Mm -hmm. if I try to hand you my template of what a meaningful life looks like, here's we've identified the hundred things you need to own, the job, one of the three jobs you must have, and exactly how much money you must contribute to charity every year. And there you'll have your meaningful life. And then you do all those things. You're like, wait a minute. I actually feel more stressed out. I feel more overwhelmed. This Mm. life isn't for me. Oh, okay. It's because what a meaningful life looks like for you might be different from what it looks like for me. When I talked to her, I told her she'd never work in this town again. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I don't plan on coming back to LA. I'm like, you better not. (laughs) No, it was funny. She was like, I don't want to let you down. I don't want you to be mad at me. And it was, yeah, it was interesting because... I mean, it it is, it's hard to let go. I mean, when, when something changes, especially that's, you know, something that's been around for eight years, like it's never easy to let go of, of that, that past, that nostalgia. But, um, no, she's wonderful. I'm like, yeah, I was like, dude, I'm happy for you. Like, it's great that you're able to go out and start this new chapter in your life. And thanks for being with us when you were. And if you need a good recommendation, we got your back on that. Yes. Yeah. I remember Ryan, when you and I worked the same corporation in the corporate world, we would often know that some were hiring someone, but there's maybe a two year, three year term limit on their, job there. And it wasn't like, well, actually, you know, we're only hiring lifers because you get a particular kind of person who's a lifer, right? But maybe it's also like, I'm helping this person through the next chapter of their life. And if if I can support them in a way that enhances their life, then they're probably going to show up as the best version of themselves for those two or three or five or 10 years, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened with Jess. My favorite Jess story is we got to a point maybe two years in that she was so disorganized. She was a pillar of disorganization. It was chaos. Her organization system sucked. And she knew it. She just couldn't get a hold of it. And eventually, eventually, Ryan and I had to have this conversation with her like, hey, I'm sorry, but this just isn't working out. Can we help you get better organized? Like, I don't think she even understood how disorganized she was. She Mm -hmm. just knew there was chaos everywhere. And she turned it around over the course of the next six months, turned it around so much that she is now the paragon of organization. Anytime Mallory or Sean or, or Jordan or Danny or anyone else needs to organize something, I say, hey, you need to go talk to Jess because she can organize. She can show you exactly how she creates her flow mm. charts or, and her asana board and, and her calendars and all of these things. Not so you can mimic it exactly, but you can get a few ingredients from her and create your own version to, well, organize the, to, to bro- provide order to the chaos. So Jess, we love you. You can yes. follow her on social media, Jess Breathes on Instagram. Is and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But Jess, you will always have a very, very special part in this chapter called The Minimalists. We're so grateful for you. Let's tune into the Patreon live Love stream. You, Jess. <clears throat> we have a question here from Ella. She says, my husband says we need whole life insurance because of our high net worth as an investment. We've had this policy for 10 years, but should we cancel this policy and cut our losses? So we're going to dive into this on the private podcast quite a bit. In fact, we talk about three financial myths that are 
total scams, they're nonsense that you want to avoid. And one of those is whole life insurance. Nothing wrong with term life insurance, but when you're buying insurance, you're not investing. When I buy car insurance or home insurance or flood insurance or hurricane insurance or business insurance, it is insurance in case something goes wrong. It's an emergency fund uh, in a way. You're, you're investing in an emergency. You're not actually making an investment in your future, so to speak. So whole life insurance, we're going to talk about why that is quite often a scam. Actually, it's always a scam. Even when people don't have the intention to scam you, it's not the best investment for your money. We're going to talk about some other myths that we want to bust in terms of your finances as well. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream as well. But in the meantime, Malabam, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Josh. This is Lisa from Minnesota. My advice to your listeners who are moving and are wondering what to take and what to leave behind is imagine you are in your new home and you open a box and you, there is the thing that you are wondering about whether you want to take. And are you thinking, wow, I'm so glad to see this. I cannot wait to use this in my new home. Or are you thinking, oh man, what the heck was I thinking? Why did I pack this? What the heck am I going to do with this? So Hopefully, this will make things more clear to you listeners. Thanks. Hi, my name is Jamie Middleton, and I live in Orlando, Florida. I did have some ideas about um, things with kids. I recently, in, within the last couple of years, on my birthday and then at Christmas, I said, you know, I don't want things. I'd rather just do things with you guys. I'd rather have experiences. So we take a trip or we go someplace really fun or special. Um, also, uh, instead of buying things for your kids, uh, we like have a membership to a science museum, a children's museum. Um, and those are great things to ask for if people are looking for gifts for you as a family or for your kids. Get a zoo membership or ask for a museum membership because you can make that last all through the year. And those are places that your children can go and play with quote unquote toys that are free, that belong to someone else, and they have to manage the clutter, and you don't. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. I thought before we get into a few of your questions in the Patreon live stream and the sucky ad that TK, finally, I found an advertisement that you're going to have a lot of struggle dealing with. You're gonna, you know, <laughs> I'm excited. Oh, I can't wait to talk to you about this sucky ad. But first, we have a talk aboutable segment. And I just want to say this. Never buy anything from an Instagram ad. Thank you. <laughs> I'm actually not telling you. I'm telling me this. Yeah. I need no, to th- thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I need to have this video just for myself. And so if someone else listening to this or watching this gets value from it, great. This is not advice for you. This is simply a directive to myself. What? Never buy anything from an Instagram ad because I am always disappointed. Even I, as one of the titular minimalists, I have been bamboozled by an Instagram ad. And it happened to me again recently. I know it happened a few years ago, but I have several t-shirts now, including this one, which are either really faded or... Uh, they have holes in them to the point where it's like, I need to replace a few of my t-shirts. What are you talking about? That, that That's cool. No, it's uncool again. <laughs> oh, it's uncool yeah, again. Yeah, it was yeah. cool from it's, 2017 it's, to 2022. Does it make you look distressed? It just makes you look stressed? <laughs> yes. Oh <my. laughs> yes. And so it looks, makes you look uh, manic a little bit. And so what 
I noticed recently, it's like I saw, I somehow Instagram knew I had a hole in my shirt. <laughs> and they're like, hey, you need a new shirt. And, and you have a hole in your shirt? <laughs> oh my God. Hey, Josh. Uh, and so I, mm-hmm. I'm going through Instagram. I'm getting ready to post a reel for our podcast mm-hmm. on Instagram. Thanks, oh, about thank- the hole in your shirt. No, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Thanks to Danny, he gives me this reel to post, and uh, I post it up on there. And as soon as I do, an ad pops up. It's like, "Hey, these are the best fitting T-shirts, and here's what other guys' shirts look like, and here's what these shirts look like." Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, you know, I do need three new shirts, so I'm just go ahead and buy three new shirts from this company. Mm-hmm. And I buy them from this company. By the way, it doesn't matter which company it is, and that's the point I try to drive home because the shirt that fits me well may not fit you well at all. But I get the shirts, and they just are mediocre. The mm. quality is mediocre. The fit is mediocre. They're fine, right? But they're just as fine as if I would have bought a few. Sh- I usually buy my shirts from eBay. Why didn't I just go do that again? Because mm. I essentially get them for sale anyway. And quite often they're either new or like new or close to new. They're in really great condition. And I'm not paying the retail store tax, so to speak, because your clothes lose 90% of their value as soon as you walk out of the store, as soon as you open the box in your home, as soon as you try it on or wear it for a day, all of a sudden it's lost most of its value. So I go to eBay, I'll buy shirts whenever I need them. But even I fell victim to the tug of advertisements. It seemed convenient and Instagram makes it so easy now. And Here's what happens. Here's why we do the sucky ad segment on the podcast, which is coming up next. And we're going to torment TK with this one. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about a sucky ad this week where finally TK is not going to be able to play the devil's advocate or angel's advocate or any advocate for this ad at all. I finally found the bulletproof, impenetrable ad that just sucks. There's only one. That's never been made, and here it is. You know, what's, you know what's funny about the Instagram ads is I, I get caught on the. Um, they must know my ADD because like it's all these the fidgety things. Like there's this really cool keychain, like these two magnets are on it, but you can do all these cool things with these two magnets. I'm like, what? I would love to waste my time doing that. Oh my gosh! <laughs> what a metaphor! I, I would, and, and that's yeah. that's the that's the thing. I would love to waste my time with this, but because I do understand that tug of advertisements, I'm like, no, you do not want to waste your time like that. Anyway, now we have a counterpoint from Professor Sean. Yeah. He said one of the things he he purchased something from Instagram at, and he's glad he did. I. I feel a little ashamed though that I purchased it because of an Instagram ad. I saw the ad over and over and over and over and it eventually wore me down. <laughs> so it still wasn't the most deliberate purchase, but this tablet that I use right here to keep our show notes on, it's a remarkable two e-ink tablet. Use the code anal beans, et cetera, et cetera. Anal, <laughs> anal beans. Oh, that's even better. Um, but I'm very happy with the purchase. I've been using it for like three years. It's one of the most useful tools I own. Uh, that doesn't mean that I feel good about buying it because because of an ad because of an ad yeah it's funny you say that because had i bought those shirts and they worked out really really well for me i would still feel like oh i wish i would have found these a different way Mm. because i don't like supporting the advertisement industrial complex let me explain what i mean by that real quick because and that's why Sean jokes, by the way, use this fake promo code because we don't do any ads on the podcast. And the reason we don't is we don't want to participate in that system. I think there's a better way. Unfortunately, we've set up the internet that we are, most things that are created, we're forced to watch advertisements on them in order to consume them for, mm-hmm. quote, free, right? And that's why I love the 
conversation about Bitcoin that we were having a bit earlier, Mm -hmm. because the technology behind Bitcoin, I think, will dismantle the in the advertising industrial complex because it will enable quick, efficient, seamless, almost frictionless micropayments to people whom you appreciate their work. Because right now the the barrier of entry is so high. If you want to support our private podcast, you have to have a Patreon account or sign up for a Patreon account. You have to input your credit card information, all of these things that are non-native to your everyday life. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely absolutely right. Like the, the way our, our monetary system works is is such that you need a third party to mediate disputes. You also need a third party to secure the form of currency. You need a third party to help prevent double spending and other kinds of problems like that. And what that means is we have to pay money in order to pay money, mm-hmm. which is why whenever you go to buy something and you see like a, a minimal credit card fee, right? Like if you're buying something that's, under $5, you got to pay in cash. Well, it's because in order to process a credit card payment, they've got to pay a fee to Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or whatever, in order to make that possible. All transactions that we make economically involve some third party, a banker, a credit card company that's making it possible for us to give one another money. Apart from like cash, I can't give you a dime without going through another system. I've got to get your bank account number and we've got to go through Bank of America or Chase or something Mm -hmm. like that. And the possibility of Bitcoin is that we would be able to exchange resources in a peer-to-peer manner without relying on that third party. And that means we don't have to pay money to pay money in quite the same way we do now. And what that means is now we can actually do transactions at a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny. We don't know what the world looks like when I'm able to pay you something that is a tenth of a tenth of a cent. Now you might say, well, who's going to charge a tenth of a tenth of a cent? Well, when you don't even have the possibility, when you don't even have the option of charging that much for a service, your creativity doesn't flow in that direction. But now what happens to online tipping, tipping, online content consumption, what happens to financing projects, you now have an alternative that comes into place with the possibility of micropayments that can challenge the advertising industry, that can challenge the traditional subscription model for paying for things Mm -hmm. because we simply don't have that available. And the underlying technology of, of Bitcoin allows us to secure a monetary system in a way that doesn't require this third party involvement as we know it. And so that is like really exciting to think about. And although most people are told and sold about Bitcoin on the basis of like, hey, put your money on this, speculate, and you might get rich. It's like, no, like that's that's the stuff that's exciting for someone who wants to sell you something. Mm-hmm. But what's really exciting is, man, this could completely revolutionize the way we do exchange. I think if we were yeah. to get rid of advertisements and we see fewer advertisements on our Instagram feed or whatever, then this is one avenue that we may want to take because it gives us back the power, the power of being the consumer, not not the consumerist, but the consumer. We all consume some things. And if I can reward people for the things that I want, it connects me directly to the people from whom I'm getting value and then I give them value back with less friction. Oh, that's a beautiful world. So an example of how this could look like, maybe like a a low-hanging piece of fruit. Let's take like Netflix, right? You may pay like a monthly subscription 
to have access to a whole bunch of movies, the overwhelming majority of which you're never going to watch, mm -hmm. right? You're only going to watch a really small fraction of those movies, but you got to pay for access to it all. And it doesn't matter if you watch half a movie or if you complete it, like you're paying the same amount every month, whether you, you have a month where you watch 20 movies or a month where you only watch two. Imagine if it were possible to have this economic model where we literally only pay based on what we watch. So if you watch like 10 minutes of a movie, you only pay for that 10 minutes. If you watch the full thing, you pay for the full thing. If you only do two movies a month versus 20 movies a month, you actually pay based on that. Our current economic system, it's way too complicated to be able to do something like that. It's almost like when we had the barter system. It's just way too complicated to do the types of things that you can do when you have a single form of currency. Well, in a similar way, if you have micropayments, that sort of thing becomes possible. It's also possible with advertising. If, if you listen to the way people talk about advertising, even when they defend it, there's no one that dreams of putting ads on their stuff. There's no one who says, this is what I really want to do. I've always wanted to like write a book or make a video and put Tropicana ads on it. No, when people defend themselves, what they say is, look, I would love an ideal world where I didn't have to do this, but it's the advertising that allows me to deliver this without breaking the bank or without me requiring people to pay a whole lot of money. Well, what if people are able to tip you or pay you based on like how much of their content you consume or like instead of like the New York Times, you know, requiring me to like sign up for a subscription just because of one article I clicked on that I want to read. I never do it, right? I click right away. I click away. But what if I could just pay like three tenths of a penny? Or what if I could just pay a penny? What if I could pay a dollar right now without... Or a dime. Friction. Yeah, right. But yeah. that's the thing. Like with New York Times, like, okay, do I have to sign up for 10 bucks a month to read this article and then go through the rigmarole of unsubscribing or, you know, just in time so I don't get recharged or whatever it might be? Yeah. And I may even be willing to pay $10 to read this article with my favorite artist. It may be worth that much to me. But think of how much they lose, though, by all the people who click away saying, I'm not going to pay $10 just to read this one article, like a nickel doesn't sound like a lot of money, but the amount of money they would be banking. Yes. If I could pay like three cents or five cents just to read this one article, that's mm -hmm. huge. But the problem isn't that they don't want to do that. Right. The problem is they aren't even they, they aren't even capable of doing that. Mm. And they're capable in a different sense where they could charge you five cents or three cents or whatever for the art or a dollar for the article, right? But it's still the same barrier of entry right now because there's no universal system that allows people to give me just a dollar or whatever it might be. Yeah. And we're getting closer to that with things like Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever, where it's, it's at least one step closer, removing a little bit of the friction there. And then, of course, removing all the friction creates other problems Do we begin to misspend our money because it's there's no friction at all. And mm. all of a sudden I'm spending five cents here, five cents here, five cents here. And before I know it, I look at my my statement, I spent $300 this month, five cents at a time. Yeah. And so we'll have to develop some new habits around that because our our habits in spending will also change as we have the ability to make these micropayments. However, I will challenge one thing that you said mm. about sucky advertisements before we get into the sucky advertisement segment. So we'll call this the preface to the sucky advertisement segment. You said no one wants to put ads on their content. I think that no, no one dreams of it. No one dreams of putting ads on their content. No. I think that was probably true a decade ago. Mm -hmm. I think now, especially people of, of Danny's generation, they feel accepted. Okay, yeah. good. well, well said. Yeah. I have enough. I have Point enough taken, clout. Yeah. Oh, when yeah, right. I mean, while well, he's stepping up to the mic, anytime I see like an influencer, mm -hmm. 
if you call yourself an influencer, I assure you, you're not influencing that many people. But anyway, when they're opening up about, oh, I just got this from insert company here and they're unpacking it. I'm like, instance, like it's so gross. Yes. Because I'm like, not only are they advertising, but there's this pride in like, um, yeah, guys, uh, I'm important enough. They sent this to me for free. Yeah. I, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I see it with people in my circle or like old friends of mine, people growing up in college is we would maybe hear about a company through an influencer and now, oh, we can be like that influencer if we can get this ad on our podcast or, mm. you know, we get this sponsorship and we want to be sponsored. Like sponsored is really just, you're just running ads for them in exchange for things. Yeah. Like I remember Ryan, you mentioned one time on the podcast and you said, or it might've been a live event where you said the worst way to, you know, uh, to pursue your passion is to think about monetizing it yeah. first. That's what my generation does. Right. And they do that with ads. Like, man, I need to start this podcast because I really want to get sponsored. And it's like, yo, because you really want to run ads. Right. It's just weird. Yeah, it is. And because you feel that there's even a worse thing. There's a a podcaster, his name's, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he he was caught running fake ads on his podcast so he could look more important. And they were like, Arby's ads and like, yeah, yeah, like Chevrolet ads just to make it look like, look how important I am. Wow. And there was some company that was like, hey, no, we don't want our ads on your terrible podcast, yeah. right? Like wow. we don't align with what you're saying. You're just clipping ads from the internet somewhere and inserting them. Oh, I got to pay the bills real quick. Here's an ad from Arby's or, or, or here's uh, a word from our sponsor. I will say this, Ryan and I, back in 2015, we've done one sponsorship ever for The Minimalists, and yet there were no strings attached. And this is why it wasn't an advertisement. And we were really, really uh, conflicted with this. We did a tour called the Word Tasting Tour, where we brought a bunch of authors on the road with us. 2015, 35 different cities. Professor Sean was there. He had a new book out at the time. What was it called? Brand Changing Day? Was that your book? At the time? Uh, Particles was the book at the time. Oh, yeah, it was. It was Particles, uh, which is your book with my favorite cover of of the ones you've done. Brand Changing Day, for whatever reason, is is still my favorite Sean Mahalik novel. It's a good one. Um, But uh, we were on tour. Uh, We did 35 cities. And we knew that we needed to put everyone up in hotels and all this other stuff. And so we reached out to our hosting company, Bluehost. And said, hey, would you be willing to sponsor this tour? And they said, well, what can you give us? I said, well, thank you at each tour stop. I can't promise you we'll give you anything else. Yeah. And um, we've had a really great relationship with them for a long time. Uh, and this, they said, okay, like, well, let's take it up to the executives, whatever. And they gave us enough money to send everyone out on this tour with us. And by the end of it, we actually had a surplus of money over left over. And so we just gave the money to all the authors and musicians who were on the tour. We did uh, literature and latte, the makers of Scrivener, as well as a sponsor on, on, on the that same tour. tour. On Sa- the same tour, with, with the same with the same caveat. And, and I mm. only feel like mentioning mm. them now because that tour made them. It got them nothing. Mm-hmm. We we ended up sent like sending because they're such a niche product. Mm-hmm. We sent nobody their way. So hey, thanks literature and latte. Yeah, mm. well, we sent a lot of people there from the How to Write Better class that I teach. Uh, Scrivener is the just the software app that Sean and I use to write books on basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so uh, reached out to them and said that, but also um, it was important to us that to, to be part of our values. Like we didn't keep any of the money from those sponsorships as yeah. well. And so just to be fully transparent there, a, we didn't have any requirement 
uh, I'm not going to talk about your product or your brand in any particular way. I will thank you uh, every night that we're doing this tour. Uh, but also, uh, I don't want to be beholden to anything here. Yeah. I was willing to completely walk away from it as well. And I think that's that's the key with all of this. And here's the difference with what Danny's talking about hmm. and what Ryan was illustrating. If you feel like to be accepted, you have a corporation accept you, are you ever really accepted anyway, right? Because, yeah, maybe Tropicana or... Um, me undies or Casper mattress or whatever advertiser wants to advertise on your podcast because you reach people, you're already accepted then. You've mm. been accepted by the people who find value in your show. Why mm. do you need the corporate acceptance as well? Yeah. Uh, first, Danny, thank you for that insight. That's, that's really good. I, I officially changed my mind um, and retract what I said. It's generationally, my generation you know, it, it was stuff like in the song, I want to be a millionaire. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, going I on be Oprah. A, I want to be a billionaire. billionaire. Yeah, yeah, but anyway. <laughs> it's like, I got to think big enough, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like going on Oprah, right? That's what we talked about. Like, yeah. that was that was how you knew you made it. And for this generation, it's like, hey, having that ad, that's how you know you make it. And it's interesting because what we're witnessing with that is a kind of... Um, an audience capture that is happening on a macro level. We typically talk about audience capture. It's like, hey, here's a comedian. Here's a philosopher that used to talk about a lot of different things. But once this side of the political spectrum started to reward them, they only focused on in that direction. Well, we're seeing that overall because now it used to be the case that advertising made content creation possible, like with network TV. But now advertising is driving the kind of content that's being created all together. And so like Ramit was pointing out, the guy that's eating and selling the the, the life insurance. Well, why are the videos being set up in that way? I, I, I saw this morning, there are a number of um like fitness and health podcasters who were like going in on, I think his name is Vshred. He has a ton. You've probably seen his, his social media ads or his YouTube ads where he's talking about getting ripped and everything like that. And, and they were pointing out how he made some videos where he's got the Joe Rogan set you know, like the, the curtains behind him, it looks like he's on the Joe Rogan show. Mm -hmm. And like, there are these highlight clips of him talking about things and they're calling him out. I don't know the whole story behind it, but people were being really hard on him for it. And I'm not here to defend him, but the first thing I thought when I saw that was, well, isn't that exactly what the internet incentivizes now? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a world where it's all about getting the clicks. Even if you're not being truthful, even if you're not being helpful, because people feel like, well, I tried to be truthful and help, helpful for 10 years and I didn't get any clicks. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I just got to dance the dance and do the things that the algorithm rewards. And now people are creating content that they don't even like, that they don't even care about. But hey, at least I'm getting these ads. Yeah. Ryan, you remember that song that I shared a few weeks ago? I think it was during the break or it may have been an added value song. And uh, the artist, Professor Sean, remind me, his name's Braden. And the song was, um, well, I just remember the lyrics. Um, I want to be honest. Uh, and he's talking about how I, I think I'm done with all this. Mm. And I think a lot, and it's gone viral on TikTok and stuff because a lot of creators are getting so overwhelmed by having to post and, and the requirements for the algorithm, to feed the algorithm. 
it's dystopian what we are trying to do now. And I say that from a perspective where we also try to do it. What we, Danny is, is chopping up TikToks for, from the podcast. We don't ever create anything specifically for TikTok or Instagram, mm. although I'm not opposed to that. Uh, I'm just saying we, we don't do that currently with the podcast. What we do is we try to find meaningful segments and insert it. But even then, it's like, it's really tempting. Like, okay, how do we play that game? And you know that if you don't play the game, then you will not feed into the algorithm. And even worse, not only will you not feed into the algorithm, I don't even care about that. I would just wish we could reach the people that follow us. Right. But we're not being fed into their feeds unless we take advantage of their algorithm as well. And by the way, I want to be clear about this. I don't think Instagram owes us anything. I don't think YouTube owes us to be put into their algorithm. No one needs to monetize our podcast for us or Mm. anything like that. I'm not owed anything. I'm not entitled to anything. We are not entitled to anything here. But it is a bit dystopian when everything we do is to serve the corporate overlord that we pretended we were getting away from through these independent media outlets. Now you're just serving a new corporate overlord now. Yeah, I, I think it was, uh, I forget the name of the, the person, but Mark Zuckerberg hired someone to sort of investigate why some people were spending more time on Facebook than others. And um, he went on to say that something like the greatest minds of my generation are spending their thinking skills trying to figure out how to get people to spend more time online clicking on more advertisements. Mm. And we are so far from Athens, right? We are so far from the greatest minds of our time debating what it means to live the good life or debating whether or not there's an object of morality, or debating whether or not there is a God, or debating biomedical ethics. The greatest minds of our time are debating, how can we get these folks clicking on more ads? And Hmm. you even start to see it infecting philosophy, because even when there are philosophical debates, it's like we're all following some kind of script. Yeah, We're all worried about the same things at the same time, because the algorithm says, hey, this is what everybody needs to be worried about now. Mm-hmm. But that's, yeah. but the algorithm doesn't, the algorithm doesn't tell you what you need. It, well, it tells you what to be worried about right now because it knows what you like and it knows what you like to worry about. So on an individual basis, but like the algorithm is, we talked about this at the symposium where it's a, um, it's a reflection of who you are as a, of what your media consumption is. It's partially well, that, but there's also the censorship uh and also i think more importantly the self censorship because of these other corporate overlords mm. advertisers and youtube for example knows right, yeah. that and so you have all these people now like i can't say the f word in the first 5 minutes of my podcast not because I don't want to curse. I don't want to offend my audience or whatever. I want to be considerate of the audience. They don't care about the audience. Yeah. They're be, I want to be considerate to the advertisers who won't give me money if I say this four-letter word on the podcast. I'll be shadow banned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the algorithm works both ways. You're absolutely right. It feeds you, but it also filters out people who don't meet that criteria. And the problem with the criteria is it's not just George Carlin's seven deadly words anymore. Right. Right. It goes so, because at least if you knew like, okay, I can't say shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. And now it's in COVID. 
<laughs> right, but we don't even know that. Like, how do right. I, I? I can't say that. I, I can't say sex. I have to say segs. I guess I don't even know. I can't say uh, sexual assault. How does that? Dem- oh, if yeah. you are a person who is a victim of sexual assault, and I have to say sa mm-hmm. because the algorithm is going to get upset at me. That's a problem, man, because advertisers, and I get it. If I'm an advertiser, if I'm in charge of Procter & Gamble, I probably don't want to be on a video that is contentious. So I totally understand. But people always find a way around that. Mm. And and it changes the language dramatically, which I'm fine with as well. I'm not a prescriptivist. I'm a a, a descriptivist, if anything, with respect to language. But I've noticed that, that what happens is we change our behaviors and it becomes really cumbersome and we're still communicating the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to that point, like, I don't think it's conspiratorial. I don't think there is a conscious entity behind the scenes wearing a t-shirt that says algorithm that's pulling all the strings. I think it's it's baked into the incentive structure to a degree to where I don't know if we'll be able to kill the monster of our own creation. Mm. And... It, it's sort of like we are being haunted by a ghost that we created that now cannot be extinguished. So uh, here's like an example of like not being offline. Let's say, let's say in my worldview, I've got a hundred different beliefs and philosophies. And let's say they're all really eclectic and I'm this really interesting person. But let's say out of that 100 beliefs, maybe one of those beliefs is a belief that like people on the right end of the political spectrum really support and people on the left end really hate, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say some organization on the right says, hey, we'll pay you 50 grand to come come give a talk about that one belief. Now, here's the interesting thing. I don't have to lie uh, to myself in order to take that check to go say what I really believe, Mm -hmm. right? But the other 99 beliefs I have, they're not feeding me. I just made 50 grand to go talk about this one aspect of my philosophy. And someone there says, hey, can you come talk about that over here? And pretty soon... I'm being honest. I'm only saying what I'm really what I really believe, but my capacity to make a living is being entirely supported by only one dimension of my philosophy and next thing you know, my whole life, my whole world is constructed around being that guy, uh the free speech guy or something mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, right? right? And there's an online version of this that's happening. People are so eclectic and interesting, but Things are set up in such a way to where it's like, no, we're not even going to include that in the newsfeed. We're going to give that low visibility. But hey, if you want to attack someone on the left or the right, um, we'll put that all the way up to the top. And and now people are having to make choices, but I don't even think they're thinking about it consciously. We're just being rewarded for only the smallest aspects of our humanity. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, a couple thoughts in my head. One is, is like, what's, what's your reward? Because pe- the people that TK is talking about here are looking at likes, they're looking at views, they're looking at shares, they're looking at DMs. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like someone posts one specific thing and this is what rockets and they're like, oh, I want more likes. Yes. I want more. Like if Josh and I and, and, and TK and everyone here wanted to get the most views and the most likes, we would do nothing but minimalism home tours. Yes. And we would blow up. And that is that is where... Uh, you know, our conscious um, kicks in and is like, no, this, we want to do meaningful work. We don't want to just like present a voyeuristic version of what minimalism is. Like we want to, that's nice. We'll do that. But that's not the only thing we're going to focus on. Um, yeah, man. One thing that I, I think we can all agree on is even if these conversations, I think they are, you know, being had with um, philosophy debates and, 
you know, what is happening, whatever it is, but it's so muddled by everything that we're talking about. Like, could you imagine back in Athens when like, you know, all right, Socrates is going to, you know, give his talk on whatever, but hold on. And first a note from our sponsors. Yeah. This talk for Socrates is brought to you by McDonald's. Yeah. Are you tired of driving on square wheels? (laughs) (laughs) Socrates catches a guy in a contradiction and he's got him against the wall. And it's like, this summer from Miramax <laughs> Films. It's like, oh, right. man. <laughs> uh, you would you'd pick Miramax. Speaking of getting canceled. <laughs> hey, by the way, maybe we're not, not so far away from Athens because, hey, Socrates was sentenced to mm. death by the hemlock, right? It's not like during his day, the conversations he wanted to have were popular. So maybe this is just a different manifestation of a, a very ancient theme, right? It's never been the most popular mainstream, trendy, easy thing Mm -hmm. to try to wrestle with the most fundamental philosophical question. So, yeah. And I think ultimately what you're talking about here, the problem with a lot of these things is audience capture. And it amplifies the one thing that you're talking about. Maybe you're the free speech guy and it's okay as long as you talk about that, but uh, please don't talk about race and politics. Okay. While while you're here. And it's like, yeah. And that's the one thing that I love about being able to do this podcast. We accidentally, I, I never intentionally want to piss anyone off, right? Um, even when I say those seven deadly words, I say it within context. I'm not doing it to be gratuitous or, or I'm not doing it to rile anyone up, right? I'm not trying to just get a reaction from someone, right? However, I think it's also easy to be like, oh yeah, like someone got really mad because we had... Dr. Paul Saladino on, or we had Dr. Nicole LaPera on, and they're, they're our best guests are almost always controversial in some way mm-hmm. because they're saying something that is against some narrative that is out there. They're pushing back against a common societal narrative. And it doesn't mean that we agree with them about everything. Of course, that should go without saying. There are going to be some guests that I agree with more than others, but it doesn't matter what my opinion is. And hopefully that's what comes across when we're doing this podcast is, yes, our guests might have an opinion. I might have an opinion, but their opinion matters as much as my opinion matters, which is zero. What matters is the truth. And these philosophical conversations that we can have, we can have them in a way where we're zeroing in on what is true regardless of what your opinion is or what my opinion is. And we could talk about things like non-monogamy and monogamy. We could talk about money clutter. We we can talk about, we can talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. As long as we're not captured by a particular fringe element of the, of the audience. I know this is some of my favorite podcasts now. Uh, Dan Savage, a great example, you know, super left-leaning socialist sex advice columnist, right? But he's constantly, and he didn't used to do this at all. I've listened to him for years, but he's constantly caveating his answers now. Mm. Uh, This is not what I think. I'm quoting from Amy Schumer here. And it's just like, oh, we have to recognize, yes, people will be offended. If we're talking, someone's probably going to be offended. It's almost an insult, too, like when you do that. Because, like, you have to assume who's listening to you is smart. And like what he's doing is assuming assuming that people who are listening to him are dumb. And that's not who he's actually appealing to. What he's appealing to are the trolls. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so someone's going to be outraged. And if you're trying to calm down the outraged person, they often get more outraged. Oh, why are you belittling me or whatever? Right. Mm-hmm. It's just not a war wor- worth fighting at mm-hmm. all. 
And so I mean, we, every episode, we have someone, every time we have a guest on, we have someone who writes in and says, hey, I really like you guys, but. but. Yeah. And then whatever it comes in that space of the ellipsis after the, the but mm-hmm. is basically, um, here's why I'm canceling, here's why I'm leaving, here's why I'm unfollowing, here's why I'm unsubscribing. Mm-hmm. And my response to that is, I totally understand. Yeah. I wish you the best. Right. Much love. Yeah. Like I, I, I've gotten a few emails like that and I'm just like, you know, um, I see you feel very strongly about this thing and I would never want you to support something that you feel so strongly against. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah. yeah. I, I've said this many times in our conversations that one of the most dangerous uh, assumptions to me is the assumption that by listening to another person, by letting them talk, by asking questions about their ideas without refuting them right then and there, um, that the assumption that that means you agree with them or endorse them. Like, here's why I believe there has not really been a great interview with Ye since his Twitter suspension. The reason is because every interviewer is overly concerned with making sure the audience knows, I don't support everything he says. They're all scared. And they're spending as much, if not more time, trying to signal to the audience, I don't agree with this guy. I want the benefits of having him on my show, by the way. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I want the benefits of right. having him on my show because I know that's a lot of views. But I also need to let you guys know that I, I really adamantly disagree with his, his tweet and everything that he said. I really disagree with him. And so as they're asking him questions, rather than listening to what he says and then following up on that, it's like, okay, this is a great opportunity for me to try to be the guy who gets him to apologize. Ooh, if I can be the guy to get Ye to admit that he's wrong, I get to build a career for myself on the back of his mistake, on the back of his, you know, controversy. And sometimes to get to the interesting places in conversation, you have to trust what conversations can do and you have to take risk and you have to say, hey, I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to let you go for 10 minutes. And, I'm, and my next question is going to be about something that you say. And I don't even know what that question is because I have to listen to you in order to know what it is. And I've got to give you a genuine reaction rather than these 10 qualifying statements here that are for the advertisers and the audience to make sure they don't associate me too strongly with you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like so much is about that. It's I don't believe you should pick controversial guests just because they're controversial. That's another form of click chasing. But like, man, how will we ever have the great conversations if we don't just sit down and get curious with people who we might disagree with or people that are shaking things up or people that everybody's mad at and say, hey, we already know all the mainstream arguments Mm -hmm. for why people hate you. That couldn't be more obvious, right? Let's talk about your perspective. Let's not relitigate what has already been discussed because there are so many more meaningful things that haven't been discussed. Yeah, and there's literally nothing new to learn about why people, you know what I mean? Like like why that's you know wrong or whatever. It's like, what were you thinking? Hmm. You know, what's your reaction from here? Yeah. Like, where are you trying to take this? You know, what would you do differently? And so there's no such thing as cancel culture. It's advertisement culture or corporation culture that force us mostly to cancel ourselves, to censor ourselves, cancel the things we have to say. And it's the thing that I love about Ye is 
he has made himself essentially uncancelable. And then when everyone canceled him, he was like, I'm still uncancelable, right? Mm. And you don't have to agree with him on anything to respect the fact that he's identified, I cannot be canceled. Even if you cancel me, I'm not going to cancel myself. Mm. And there's some respect there, right? Yeah. You were talking earlier about for our generation, one of the the hallmarks of I've made it is being on Oprah. And mm. I think that's by and large true. But for me, it was seeing Jonathan Franzen turn down Oprah. Mm. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Mm. He was invited on and it was getting ready to go on there. And then he was like, you know what? I don't want to be on Oprah. I don't want my book to just be sold to this audience. Now, that's not something I would do personally, mm -hmm. but I respected the fact that he was like, hey, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't something I want to do. And just because everyone else would do it yep. doesn't mean that I have to do it either. And then about a decade later, he apologized and went on Oprah. I don't know that he apologized, wow. but I, I, he went on Oprah a decade later with his second book, Freedom, not needing it anymore. And before his first book was this huge, huge success, he really could have used Oprah because his previous novels, as you know, they were quite good, but they didn't have any of the commercial success that the corrections had. Yeah. And, and and so he really needed it. And so someone who really needs to be on Oprah says, nah, it's not for me. And I think the same thing could be true with anyone, whether it's Ye or it's The Minimalist, right? Like, yeah, we would really benefit financially if we just did ads and we did ads that aligned with our values even. Mm -hmm. We would really benefit from that. But being willing to say, no, you know what? That's not for me. I'm not going to censor myself. I'm not going to let other people, like, yay, he knows. I'm not going to let other people dictate what I say. I'm not going to let other people censor me. And I'm certainly not going to censor myself for a damn advertiser. That's why advertisements suck. Mm -hmm. Speaking of sucky Ooh. ads, we have an, a sucky ads uh -oh. segment here. TK Coleman. Here we go. Here we go. I don't know here what this go. is, but everyone says I'm not going to be able to play Angel's Advocate with it. <laughs> so this is a tweet. We're combining TK's Tweet of the Week with the Sucky Ad segment <laughs> this week. And this is from The Art of Purpose, their verified account on Twitter. I don't know if that means anything okay. anymore, right? Yeah. And uh, the text of this, it's on top of a photo. So if you're watching the video version, you can see the photo here on your screen. TK, I'm going to hand this to you in a moment so you can marvel at how advertisements have, have entered our culture in a, a beautiful way. Um, cathedrals were once sacred. And there's sort of a before and after picture. The cathedrals in, in 1523, here's what a cathedral looked like in 1523. And here's what a cathedral looks like in 20. 23. Can you describe this image for people who are just listening to the podcast? I'm looking at the image first of cathedrals in 1523. So you're seeing my reaction in real time. I am completely filtering out the one on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And it's just beauty. It's everything you imagine a cathedral to be, right? The design, the, the sacredness of the space. It, it looks like what a cathedral is supposed to convey, something that is transcendent or out of this world. Mm -hmm. As I look down, cathedrals in 2023, just waiting to see what I'm supposed to be disappointed at. Okay, it looks like on the building itself, there is an ad for Galaxy S23 or 523 series. And, and is that, that's like a billboard that's on the no, actual no. cathedral? Is it, yeah. is it a stage? 
No. Oh, okay. It's a giant, it's a giant billboard on the cathedral. Here's what we have. Yep. We have a giant, beautiful cathedral that is mm. covered up with a substantial, a huge billboard. Do you have a problem with this? What are your thoughts? What are your insights? Mm. So there's a saying. All things. We got him. We got him. <laughs> all right. On to the minimalist home tour. <laughs> There's a saying that all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable, right? Um, mm. It's funny. I almost it's from wanna, the book of Yay. Almost <laughs> wanna, it's actually from the Bible, so it's relevant to cathedrals. Wow. Uh, it's interesting, though. I almost want to reverse it for this one, right? Mm. Uh, look, people can choose to do what they want, right? That doesn't make it good. Um when I look at this, I think to myself, man, the value of a cathedral is to give the world something that it can't do better than you. And one of the mistakes I think that churches often make is they strive so hard to be culturally relevant that they descend into the territory of doing things that they will never be able to compete at doing because the world is always doing those things, already doing those things way better than them. Mm. And it's like, how about you give me something that I can't get from the radio, that I can't get from the shopping mall? How about when I walk into your spaces, I feel connected to something that a shopping mall won't even dare to try to connect me to. Mm -hmm. And so you blend in more, you look more contemporary, you look more worldly, you look more relevant, and now you also do that in a way to where, oh, if I'm going to get that, I'm just going to go to the places that do it right. Mm. I'm just going to go to the places that do it in an interesting way that's relevant to me. So yeah, it, it, um, to me, it, it feels disappointing. I don't know what the full story is behind why they did that and what their logic was, but me commenting on the way it impacts me, you know, the, the idea of sanctuary isn't just like a religious term to convey like a sacred space. The idea of sanctuary is that there's somewhere where you can go where you don't feel like you are at war. And the idea of a church functioning like a sanctuary is, hey, maybe you've got a problem. Maybe you're stressed out or maybe you're just walking by. Here's a building that you can come into. And for the 10 minutes that you're here, mm -hmm. you don't feel like you're at war. Mm -hmm. You look at those stained glass windows. You look at those icons. You look at the relics, the way the architecture is and the way the space takes your consciousness up. It's like, yeah, for these 10 minutes, I'm, my mind is on the interior space of the soul. Mm. But it's like, man, if I'm looking at Android ads and iPhone ads, it's like, okay, you, now you're really irrelevant mm. because the one thing you had that the world couldn't give me, you gave away to try to be relevant to the world at a game that the world will always be better than you at. Mm. Mm. Ryan, I'm thinking about when I look at the space and what's the extension of this? To me, it's like you, now you go in the church or what's the next step? And like yeah. there's a the stained glass Virgin Mary, but she has a Prada bag on. Man, right? I, I walk yeah. out so fast. <laughs> right. But and so that's a type of average. And you're not against them having the ability to do that. But you would walk out because it doesn't align with creating the sacred space that you would enjoy. And then you see you see Jesus up on the crucifix, right? And he has a McDonald's cup in his hand. I mean, at some point, it's, you know, people would call it sacrilegious or whatever, right? And 
I don't think you're taking some sort of fundamentalist point of view here, and, and neither am I. Mm-mm. It's just you look at it and you say, oh, I'm, you've removed the beauty from this beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to support that. And, and, and by the way, you know, like th- there, there's something interesting about, you know, like having the Ugh, that's blasphemy kind of attitude that makes you easy to manipulate. Mm. Because once people can see, oh, I can trigger you by doing that, yes. that, that just incentivizes them mm. to put a McDonald's bag in the hand of Jesus because there's nothing more delightful to some people than seeing how easily they can get you to, you know, be riled up by how serious you take yourself and your beliefs. And so for me, it's not even about going in and seeing that and being like, oh, how could someone and having a total mm. meltdown? It's me looking at something like that and being like, I want nothing to do with that at any level. I'm out. It's mm. not for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. This sucky ad is certainly not for me either. And I think whether you're religious, non-religious, you could be Catholic, you could be Protestant, you could be Muslim, you could still appreciate the beauty of a cathedral like this, right? Yeah. Your average Buddhist monk will go see this and have a lot of commonalities with their sanctuary and their sacred spaces, right? But you ruin it with an advertisement. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because we're doing the same thing. It may not be the same sort of parodic, exaggerated example of Jesus with the McDonald's cup in his hand, but that's what we're doing with podcasts. That's what we're doing with YouTube videos. That's what we're doing with movies and shows. We're filtering in advertisements that do this to the beautiful art that we're creating. Yeah. But we can say no. Yeah. But by the way, this is a macro level example of a problem that we experience on a micro level every day as individuals. The great question of life is this. We all have something sacred to offer or we have all have something to offer to the world that could be construed as being sacred in some mm-hmm. sense. And yet we all have difficult questions to answer about how am I going to put a roof over my head? How am I going to survive? Now, there are easy ways to answer that question. I can go do something that I hate. I can go compromise myself in all sorts of ways. But the ideal would be to be able to provide for oneself in a way that's in alignment with your values. How far are you willing to go in the game of compromising in order to do what you want to do? Like, like, like what if somebody approached us and was like, hey, look, I've studied the algorithms and you guys can increase your views on everything you do by 10% if you're just eating something while you're recording. It doesn't matter if there are any labels on it. I'm not asking you to advertise. I'm just mm-hmm. asking you to eat something. That, that doesn't feel like too big of a compromise, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can put a banana here or I, we can have a plate of fruit and just like, hey, TK, make sure every 20 minutes you take a grape and eat it, man, you know, mm-hmm. like because it's gonna be good for the algorithm. But over time, that can start to control you, right? It's not morally wrong to have a plate of fruit here, but now it's like every 10 minutes, I incorporate that into my habit. I got to take a grape. I got to eat a banana. How far do we have to go before we're just puppets now and we're not even eating when we want to, but everything we do from what we eat, when we eat, when we chew, when we laugh is dictated by the algorithm and it's happening at such an incremental place, at at such an incremental space. We don't even know when our souls were lost. Yeah. Man, it it comes down to like, what is socially acceptable? And unfortunately, uh, the things that are becoming more socially and socially more and more acceptable are advertisements. And that's why the church is doing it. Because it is, I I bet you there's nothing on the inside there. Because then that's where they've got to draw their line. But you're right, that line, it just keeps 
getting moved. But it goes back to that question like, hey, what do you want? And we know what we want. We sure as hell don't want that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's so good. Let's pivot over to the Minimalist Home Tour. This is number 32 in our series. If you subscribe to the video version of the podcast, you received a photo in your inbox last uh, Friday. And this is a picture of Brit's home. I called this one Rest Hard, Play Harder. And Britt, she wrote us a little message. You want to read that for us? Yeah. She said, I decided to merge the playroom and my son's bedroom. This was a huge project and I'm so happy I did it. Yeah. I mean, I'm so happy you did too. I saw this and I was like, oh, this is so zen. As It looks almost like it would be in an advertisement of like, oh, here. But no, you have your child's room that it's aesthetically pleasing to you. But here's the thing that I've realized from having a nine-year-old daughter is when her space feels calm, when my child's space feels calm, she is calmer. Wasn't that true for us as well? We have a cluttered space. The stuff isn't the problem. We all need some things. So the problem is not our stuff. It's our desire for more or how things are supposed to be. But when you clear out all the clutter, what are you left with? The bones are the beauty. That's the essence of minimalism here. And it's not that you own nothing. You didn't clear out everything and just have an empty room. You could do that if you want. I mean, I think as a kid, when I was nine years old, having just an empty room would have like been a great opportunity. You give me a basketball, there's a few subtle things to play in that room, but creating the space for activity, for living, for life. And yes, there's still a bed there because you have to sleep in order to, to play hard, right? But you've gotten everything else out of the way. And the few accessories you have in here, they augment the experience of life. And I, I bet you your child has a better life, a better childhood, not because of the things that they have here, but because of the space that you've created for them. Mm. Bravo, Britt. Yeah, looks great. Any insights from Britt? Yeah, nothing to add. Man. I thought thought you... Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) Just love. Let's tune in the Patreon live stream. First time I felt like I really disappointed Josh. He was like, man, really? (laughs) <laughs> well, you shouldn't say things so well. I mean, he's always, he's usually like, he wants to chime in. I'm trying to give him a chance and then he doesn't want to chime in. I think we've been going for like four hours. I, I've, I've been traumatized yeah, yeah, yeah. by like the way he's looked at me when I've gone over the no, cut. I, the one thing I will say is it's funny how like p- parents feel like they got to have a playroom for their kids. And Britt probably maybe had this expectation whether she did or didn't. But the thing is, is like she was able to be like, oh, how can I do both in one? Yes. And like, that's what I really appreciate about that. Well, growing up, my bedroom was also the playroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you know, a, a time it was me and Jerome, we shared, and my brother, we, we shared a bedroom and we would both sleep on the futon th- together. Yeah. And that's just how it was, right? Mm. Yeah. Ryan's whole double wide trailer was a playroom when you think about it. Dude, mm. yeah, I had no room in that. Thing. When, when you have the right attitude, any room's a playroom. I slept on a, the round, um, the round uh, uh, cushiony thing that goes on the wicker circle chairs you know what I'm talking uh, about a papazon yes. chair what is it it's a papazon chair yeah, I slept on the uh, cushion of a papazon chair yikes yeah, that was my that was my bedroom <laughs> who's got some questions for us in the Patreon live stream Alabama here's a money related question from Kathy how often should I rebalance my portfolio should I do it quarterly monthly I, I don't I don't think about it that way um, 
where I'm constantly trying to rebalance. If you if you do a robo investor like a Betterment or any of the other ones, I, I, there's certainly no sponsors here. Um, I tend to look at my portfolio once a year. Yeah, and if I'm looking at it once a year, it helps me understand. Okay. What do I want to do? What's the direction I want to go? And if you're invested in a place like Vanguard, usually the target fund rebalances for you. And so I'll just give you a quick example here. So my re- uh, my target retirement date is like 2040, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that means, because I don't ever plan on retiring, right? right? But it rebalances each year based on what your target is. It becomes more conservative as you age, right? You're mm-hmm more aggressive when you're younger because you can take those risks more aggressively. Mm-hmm. But if you're 58 and a half years old, you probably don't want to be super aggressive because you could lose half your money in the market this year with some yeah. big downturn. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're keeping it simple. And like, that's the key. It's because if you if you have to rebalance every month, every quarter, every six months, it doesn't that doesn't sound really simple to me. The one thing I'll throw in there, though, is what Ramit said about like something like Bitcoin. If you are, what's the word that you use, TK? You're not speculating. Yeah, if you're speculating with Bitcoin or any other individual stocks or anything else, if it goes from, you know, uh, 2% of your portfolio to 23%, then yeah, sell that. Like, yeah, yeah, like if you make, you know, what would that be? Like a thousand X or something of, um, you know, of your initial investment, then yeah, then maybe you want to look at rebalancing it from that aspect. But um, if it's something you have to do on a regular basis, then yeah, that doesn't sound simple at all. You see why we call him the human abacus. <laughs> <laughs> One helpful way to think about this is to consider the distinction between being a day trader and an investor. A, a day trader, you're at your computer maybe several hours a day watching every little movement and adjusting yourself according to these market movements, right? And in order to do that, you've got to be really well-researched. You've got to have the time and you've got to be committed to that as this is who I want to be. I want to be a day trader. On the other end of the the spectrum is you have an investor who is, you know, investing for the long term, Mm -hmm. right? They're investing in things that um, will fluctuate up and down in the short term, but over the long term, there's a, a fairly reliable percentage of growth that you tend to get from those kinds of assets. Um, like the stock market, for instance, how it tends to perform over like in time spans that are like 15 years or longer mm-hmm. versus from week to week. Now, the more you ch- have to check your portfolio, the closer you are moving to like the day trader side of things. And so what you got to think about is when, when you're investing is you're not just investing for money, you're also investing for your peace of mind and you want to be leery of investing in things that require you to give up your peace of mind for the sake of checking in on the investment every day, every week, every month. If you have to check in on that, that frequently, then you might be investing in things that are so high risk, so speculative that you really can't afford to walk away for longer than a quarter. But if you can't walk away from your investments for longer than a quarter, then you're sacrificing your peace of mind to play high risk games that may not be right for you. I'm glad you brought this up because the way that I said, well, that doesn't sound so simple to me. Like uh, that's not a judgment. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it sounds complicated. And I don't have the knowledge to understand, to answer this question uh, with something that has such complexity to it. If you're willing to put in the time, if you're willing to put in the research to gain the knowledge of how to work that more complex financial, you know, portfolio that you have, great, like more power to you. But, but to your point, it's like, you have to be willing to dedicate the time to make sure that you're not just 
putting it all in black or something. Yeah. It's like Josh saying that he owns a Bitcoin. If if he were coming up to me every day being like, man, it just went down 2%. Mm-hmm. And then like he, he, he texts me like at, at 4 p.m. Hey, it just went up a little bit. I'm really yeah. excited. And then at 7 p.m. I got another, another text. I'd be like, dude, like Bitcoin might not be right for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But we know it works for him because one, he's comfortable losing everything. He knows that he speculated mm-hmm. on it. But two, when he bought it, he walked away. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, if it goes up to like a hundred grand or something, he's not going to be able to ignore that because everyone will hear about it. But it's like, he doesn't have to look at it every day. He I can just no walk away and enjoy it right now. Right. Yeah. It could be, you, you could tell me it's worth $3,000 or it's worth $50,000. I simply don't know right now. Right. And the reason being is I'll check in once a year on, on these things, just yeah. like I will anything else, uh, whether it's my SEP IRA, my uh, my traditional IRA, if you have a Roth IRA, whatever it is, I'll look at it, but then I set it and forget it because I don't want that burden. I, I know a woman who is a day trader and she really enjoys, that's how she makes her living, doing day trading. Mm-hmm. And for her, it makes sense to invest in individual stocks. You don't do day trading in the S&P 500. You don't go to your SEP IRA and day trade with it. Right. They're not the same vehicles, right? And it's just like you don't use a bicycle to travel to Antarctica, right? It's a, The vehicle won't get you there, right? right? And so identifying what the appropriate vehicle is, if you don't want to think much about your retirement and investments and all of these other things, then you want to find a, a index fund, but you want to find something that's really boring. It's so boring that you don't have to worry about it going up and down and all these other things, mm-hmm. because here's what will happen. If it goes down, you'll panic. Mm-hmm. If it goes up, you'll panic in a different way. Yeah. You'll, you'll panic in the sense that, oh, I should have put more money in. I should have done this. I should have done that. So oh, I true. really screwed up. Like the fear is going to get triggered within you regardless if it goes down or up. It's yeah. just a different type of fear. There's that movie Boiler Room and one of the, the, the scenes in it, he talks about, you know, they will call you every day if their stock goes down, but it's much worse if the stock goes up because now they're calling you every 10 minutes. Should I invest more? What should I do? And so like you realize that our psyche, we're wired for these shortcuts, these quick wins, the quick fixes, but also we're, we're wired to be devastated by a 3% loss. You didn't lose anything. Loss is a concept. Mm-hmm. You didn't lose anything. It's zeros and ones. And so what if I told you that, yes, your portfolio has gone up 100% since last year, but you don't plan on touching it for another 20 years. It literally doesn't change your daily life at all. Right except it changes the story you're telling yourself about that money. Yeah. You get to feel good emotionally. Ooh, my portfolio is up today. Well, and between now and the next five years, it's probably going to take a dip that brings your emotions right back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just depends on the day. Depends yeah. on the day. It's like yeah. the weather in Ohio. If you don't like it, wait a day. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or uh, LA now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. No more of that. We're done with winter, yeah. y'all. This is practically Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> For our added value segment this week, I've actually got two added values. The track you're listening to in the background looping right now is my favorite solo R&B artist. His name's Black. His new album is called Since I Have a Lover. And this song is called Testify. And his first album, this is his third album. His first album is probably my all-time favorite R&B album. It's... It's just so, it's a perfect album, especially when you're in the bedroom. It is a perfect album. But his new album is outstanding as well. The new album, Since I Have a Lover, this is Testify from that album. And while you hear that looping in the background, I thought I'd talk to you about a movie that Bex and I went to go see 
last week. We did our day date. We went to a movie theater. Was it Cocaine Bear? <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I think this is the prequel. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it's called Jesus Revolution. Okay. And here's the thing. It's a religious movie, but it's not anything. It's first, it's not the movie I thought it was going to be because it is about the Jesus revolution that happened throughout the 1960s and 70s. Mm. And um, these films tend to be really bad. This film should have been bad because you have to thread the needle perfectly on the first go in order to make a film like this work. Yeah. So first off, it stars Kelsey Grammer, which it's probably the role of his lifetime. Wow. It's unbelievable. Have you seen it yet? TK? I haven't seen it. No. Uh, we went to theater for it, but I know it's available uh, to stream online as well. The lead actor is also the guy who plays Jesus in The Chosen. Is he really? Yeah. Mm. What's his name, uh, Sean? Jonathan Jonathan Ramey? Is it Jonathan Ramey? I, I'm not sure. But ba- so, so, Bama will tell us shortly. So he plays Lonnie <clears throat> Frisbee. Uh, who I thought going into this, I thought Lonnie Frisbee was sort of like a fraud cult guy, but he's not. Now they do leave a significant, I'm not going to spoil the film. They leave a significant part of his life out of the film, mm. but he's sort of a character. He's not even the lead. He, he sort of comes into the film okay. for a period of time mm-hmm. and they don't show his full life, which okay. I think could be misinterpreted as, as, as maybe even misleading in a way. Mm-hmm. But if you set that aside for a moment, what was truly remarkable to me is Kelsey Grammer's character, Chuck Smith, who he's like this pastor in this church that is just failing. And and I went to, into this, I, I knew nothing about the film. It was just looked like the only partially interesting film that was available at the movie theater. And Bex and I wanted to go on a date. And so we went and saw it. And we were both just blown away by, by the film. I It should not have been good. There were a million opportunities for this film to be horrible. And it somehow circumvented every one of those. Wow. And it was, the casting was spot on. Like, mm. everyone was cast perfectly, it felt like. There was maybe one character that was a little bit off, but everyone was cast perfect. It was a, a side ancillary character. Um, it was Greg's mom, I thought, was a little a little on the nose. But um, everyone else was cast perfectly. The writing was perfect. There were these just these lines, but it really showed you had this, this pastor who's part of this fledgling, this church that was just sort of failing, right? And there were maybe 30, 40 um, congregants at this time. And they were so stuck in the dogma of their religion and the process. They didn't realize why they were doing this anymore. They weren't loving anyone. They weren't showing love. They were just sort of going through the motions, the the rituals. But it was lifeless. Hmm. And then these young people start coming to the church and it wasn't, and some of the the congregants were afraid that, oh, we're bending the knee to culture. But it wasn't that. It was meeting culture sort of where it was. And these young people who were full of life, but were also looking to change their life. They recognized they weren't finding meaning and fulfillment in endless sex, in endless drugs, endless consumption, endless pleasure. They weren't finding fulfillment there. And so they started looking for it in other places. And one place that they looked was in church, in in this religion. And to me, it was incredibly meaningful because you saw in real time, Chuck Smith, the the main character here, uh, one of the main characters really, 
the dogma start to fade. And he, as the dogmas faded, he made room for love. It didn't mean that he, he released his beliefs. It didn't mean that he released his values. It meant that he better understood what it meant to live in accordance with the things he said were his priorities or mm-hmm. his values. And it was such a well-done film that I... It, it shouldn't have been as good as it was. Wow. Yeah. Jesus Revolution. That I actor, enjoyed it. That actor, by the way, is Jonathan Rumi. Rumi. Yeah. Mm. Close. I haven't seen The Chosen, but uh, I, I, uh, I've, I've heard both good and bad things about it, so I don't, I don't really know what to think about that. Yeah, well, well, the tricky thing about religious movies like that is what is already always true of content creation is especially true of content creation oriented around a religion that's been around that long. And it is, you absolutely cannot please everyone. You 100% will offend someone because you're either going to emphasize certain things too much or too little, and people are going to get upset about that. And so I think the production quality and the storytelling is such that uh, that it's interesting. And, and for me, I've enjoyed watching it. I haven't preached. I haven't preached it religiously like everybody. Else, this is the best thing that's ever going to be done. I don't think there's anyone who needs to see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't feel like I need to promote it. I've watched it. I've enjoyed it. But I don't think I'm right for enjoying it. You know, and I don't think me enjoying it requires me to believe that everything was represented in a way that 100% accords with my theology. No, mm-hmm. it, it was it was it was fun. It was enjoyable, and I thought there was a lot of uh, imagination brought to a lot of the story. So, uh, but I don't want to take the spotlight off of the one that you're talking about. But I love to hear what you think of uh, mm-hmm. the chosen. Uh, but to to a to a broader point that you're making here, like it shouldn't have been that good. I think. Uh, a lot of movies that fall under the banner of like, hey, this is a family-friendly movie or this is a Christian movie or a religious movie or whatever, kind of like stand-up comedians who don't curse, there's a history of it being just like, this is really bad. Mm. Like, I get what you're trying to do and it's noble, but I'm not going to spend my time, energy, attention, and money on something just because you aren't doing something bad. You still got to create some compelling art. But the game is changing now where we're getting more and more high-quality production for stories like this that might be family friendly or mm-hmm. that once upon a time were countercultural or too non-mainstream. And mm-hmm. that's exciting to see where storytelling can go. It's funny, man, because when a comedian does it right, you don't even know they're not cussing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there that's what it sounds like this movie did. It, this didn't, it didn't feel like a religious movie yeah, to me. That right. was, even though it's... Those are my favorite musicians. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, I didn't even realize Collective Soul was a Christian band. Like I, I used to jammed to some collective soul back in the day. I was in junior high. <laughs> Aging myself. It was it was before Danny was like born, I think. Yeah. Uh yeah, but but like I love that and, I, and I've experienced I've experienced that so many other times with artists and it it is a joy to be like, "Oh, like how wonderful that you are able to like like reach my uh, my tastes without like making me feel like I have to listen to a message. Like the message is there if you want to hear it or it's just really good music. But I'll tell you what though, any good artist like if I if I ever did a painting or a movie or whatever, or books, the podcast. So I mean, in a way, maybe you know, uh, I could look at myself as a, as an artist, but I would much rather it be either pissing people off or making them really really happy. Hmm. That in between vanilla thing, like yeah. that's that that would suck. 
Yeah, and you're not doing it to intentionally piss them off. No. Or maybe you're not even doing it to intentionally make them happy either. It's just you are doing what is true to you. Mm-hmm. And I was at the museum yesterday looking at some Picasso paintings. And I find now, and this is disappointing to me because I see there becomes this sort of... It, it's unfortunate because it gets in the way of the art. Like, I know that Picasso was kind of a dick, mm-hmm. right? Um but now it's like being put on the placards and stuff that like essentially they're describing oh. it with like this these verbiage that is like it's passive aggressive. You know, some people might call it wokeism or whatever. Right. And it's like, oh wait, I no, I came here to look at the the Picasso painting because it's beautiful. I don't want to know that the curator of this exhibit is slightly off put by uh what how Picasso lived his life. Um, Why are we treating people like they're dumb? <laughs> this is, I mean, it's funny because I didn't even realize this till this podcast, but like we're just treating people like they're ignorant. Well, I mean, there's a George Carlin joke that I think illustrates this well. Is think, of, think about how dumb the average person is and mm-hmm. then realize that 50% of the people are dumber than that person. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true mathematically. I, I don't, but I don't think they're actually dumb. I, I think they're, they're addicted to, uh, to recreational outrage. Yes. And like that... So it depends on what you mean by dumb. Right. That is true. So, yeah. But anyways, it's it's just unfortunate because I guess we're we're enabling it and doing it to ourselves. But yeah. we don't think any of you are dumb listening to this. <laughs> so... Well, you know, one, one particularly dangerous thing about, you know, putting all of these qualifiers now, just so you know, even mm-hmm. though this is uh, a pretty good work of art, even though the Mona Lisa and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this person wasn't perfect, you know, the real dangerous thing about that for me isn't that we treat the consumer or the observer as if they are dumb but the person who's writing that qualifier is letting us know that they don't consider those same possibilities to be true for them Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is when you say well I want to be on the right side of history what's often being overlooked is that you don't get to decide if you're on the right side of history the only thing you get to decide is what you believe and if you're going to live in accordance with that. But you know who gets to decide if you're on the right side of history? The mm. next generation of people. In the same way that you're doing it to a bunch of dead people that don't have the power to talk back. When we're all gone, the next generation or people 200 years from now can look at all of us and say all of them were complete idiots, including the people who thought they were righteous writing all of the qualifiers, telling us all the flaws of the heroes of the past. They're idiots too. We don't get to decide if we're on the right side of history. All we can decide is, are we going to live in accordance with our principles? And if you're so preoccupied with, oh, let me make sure I'm on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hilarious. 200 years from now, they won't have any respect for us. They'll think all of our conversations were shallow, superficial, and filled with self-righteousness. Best to live for something that isn't subject to the whims of people that you will never meet who you don't even know if you'd respect them if you did meet them. Dude, the other day someone was like, uh, oh, you shouldn't get gas at Shell anymore. I'm like, I shouldn't. Well, why not? Well, here's the bad thing that it. I'm like, where should I get my gas? I don't know. Just not Shell. I'm like, you realize no matter what oil company you name, there's fault. Mm-hmm. No matter what. I mean, I saw this like it was a video game reviewer and um, he was he would like start playing a game. And he's like, oh, can't play this one because this executive's niece's brother's former's roommate um, was charged with, with this. And then he like, oh, she's like, so we're going to play this game. He's like, oh, wait, I can't because the uh, CEO uh, 26 years ago, they, I mean, and it was it was a parody of like 
And then he just like, he's like, sorry, I can't play any video games. Y'all, I know this is what what I do for you, but I have to stand up for what I believe in. And there's not one innocent person who's made a video game. But that's where, but that's like where we're at. It's like, don't tell me what I shouldn't do. Like, show yeah. me someone, show me what the example is. Yeah. Anyone, in fact, right. I was, uh, is there, I, don't, I don't think there's many. That's why I'm saying that. Yeah. yeah. Professor Sean saw this movie, uh, Jesus Revolution in the show notes. And he was like, I, I think the movie's a bit problematic because it leaves out this whole, this whole bit about mm-hmm. uh, Lonnie Frisbee's mm-hmm. life. And while I agree with that, I also don't want to be like, because I'm not recommending this film. I'm saying that I found immense value in it. Is there any, I don't know if there's anything to add that wouldn't be a bit of a spoiler though, Sean. No, I don't think so. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything, uh, but I didn't use the word problematic. I'd uh, never use that. Oh, okay. That's a very <laughs> problematic term for me. <laughs> oh no, you said propaganda. That, that's what I said. Slick propaganda, which yeah. maybe is a little harsh. I, yeah. You know, I, I was, I was feeling, still feeling a little emotional about it. Mm. So maybe that's harsh, but I'll let other people decide. Tell me this, this will be brief and it won't spoil anything. Was the propaganda, did the propaganda make the, make this person look better than you think they were or worse than you think they were? It made some people look better than, uh, than I think they were. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think you, you run into that anytime you're telling a story within 90 minutes, you have to necessarily leave something out. Yeah. We've come across that with both of our films. Sure. We had a 79-minute film with a 1,000 hours worth of footage. You have to leave something out of it. And usually you leave things out that don't serve your narrative. And so in some sense, like propaganda literally means to propagate. I mean, that, that's, that's the etymology of propaganda, to propagate your faith or message or whatever, right? And so, yeah. so yes, in a way, whatever we create is going to propagate the thing that we're trying to communicate. Even in art, if you don't have a particular message. And that's what I liked about this film is I don't feel as though they were trying to overtly express a particular message. Here's what you should do. It didn't feel that way to me. However, um, I also don't see it as being a particularly Christian or film in the sense that Ella's been asking me a lot about Jesus recently. Mm-hmm. I don't, someone wants to brought it up at school or, or you know, her unschooled that she goes to or whatever. And I talked to her about it a bit and it's very confusing to her as someone who hasn't grown up in a church setting. And so you mentioned The Chosen earlier. Would you recommend that to someone who's asking questions about that? Or is there something you would recommend to a nine-year-old who's who's looking for an unbiased, non-propaganda sort of uh, insight on religion and, and Je- not religion, not even religion, but Jesus in particular, the human being who was Jesus. No such thing as a non-biased opinion on Jesus. There you go. And, and, and that includes my opinion, which I take very seriously and orient mm-hmm. my life around. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get any kind of expression of belief about Jesus that is coming from some sort of neutral, you know, neutral sort of philosophic space, right? So I, I think one of the most important things you can say to someone is, is, is something that encourages the curiosity. Mm. My, my mother was very good with me in this regard where she didn't pretend to be ignorant of things that she knew, but rather when she saw that I was curious about something, it's almost like she had this attitude of like, ooh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull this boy as far as I can pull him and keep that curiosity alive. She made sure that she didn't answer my questions in a way that shut it down and gave me the definitive understanding for no questions to be asked. She would, she would ask me about what I was asking. Tell me, tell me why you asking me that. Mm. Tell me, tell me, what do you think? Mm. I, I mean, look, this is what, according to the gospels, Jesus himself did. He says, 
who do people say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Mm -hmm. Who do you say that I am? Right. Right. So someone comes to ask me, hey, man, who is Jesus? I don't even know why you're asking that. And I can answer that in about 10 different ways. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you what I believe. But like, am I even speaking to where you're coming from? I'd like to know what made you ask me that? Mm -hmm. First, what made you even ask me? What's making you ask the question? Who do you think he is? Yeah, and yeah. and let's get a conversation starter going. So, you know? is is yeah. there a piece of media, mm. any media, podcast? Um, mm. it, keeping in mind, we're talking about for kids here, right? Is is there a piece of media that is a great on ramp to a conversation? In your in your humble opinion, I can think of lots of media designed for kids that depicts different aspects of like Christian history, right? Like Bible stories for kids, mm-hmm. right? Some of which includes Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally watch like the saints for kids, right? Where it's stories about the saints and all these heroes of faith and so on. But I don't know of anything specific that addresses that. But what I will do is I will ask around and look around because mm-hmm. I, I haven't been like confronted with that challenge, yeah. which is uh, quite interesting. But um, as far as chosen, look, man, I, I think it's you know, you know, I, I, it makes me think about when 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 someone was asking Ramit the question about like all the different resources and like you don't know like who you should trust and so on. Well, w- one of the things I was thinking about is that when it comes to resources, you not only want to think about things that are high quality, but also you want to think about things that you'll actually engage. And so a a decent book or a decent movie that you'll actually read or watch is better than the best one ever that's like too big and boring for you to ever engage, Mm -hmm. right? So I I, I prefer to just be like, oh, just give her a Bible. But we both know what's going to happen with that, right? So The Chosen, it doesn't have to be perfect, but I think it's actually worth watching because it'll stimulate more questions and it'll actually make her more interested. I think it will achieve that. Yeah, I think it's probably way, way too long, especially for someone who's nine and, and has the attention span of a nine-year-old. What, what I'm really trying to say here, and we're beating a dead horse at this point, yeah. um, I, she's asking questions about not religion, but about yeah. Jesus. Like, yeah. who is Jesus? And so patrons or whoever's listening to this at this point, we've gone this far in, uh, you can let us know in the comments Uh, But in the meantime, listen to the song called Testify from Black. Big thanks to Ramit Sethi for joining us today. We'll put a link to his new Netflix series in the show notes. All right, that's our maximal episode. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, and one more time, Social Jess, Hmm. Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. I got a thousand miles deep hole in my chest. My lungs can't take these weeks of holding my breath. Waiting for you. Come back around and love me again. Mm. I'm in a haze of walking cloud of distress, and I ain't safe from my own brain. I'm a mess, waiting for you.
Just to justify my love Just to justify my love Oh, I've been calling you Trying to justify my love Just to testify That I sleep in a sorrow If only tomorrow You love me again Tomorrow, if only tomorrow. 